Hey, everybody, and welcome into episode 126 of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller, pleased to be joining you guys once again. Hope everybody is enjoying their Saturday. So much to cover on today's show, not just with NASCAR this weekend at Phoenix Raceway, but also we are one step closer to the new league year for the National Football League. Four days away from the 2023 league year officially beginning Wednesday, March 15th at 4 o'clock Eastern Time. I appreciate you guys tuning in very much as we talked about on the last show. Derek Carr, this past Monday, signing a four-year, $150 million contract with the New Orleans Saints, $100 million guaranteed, reuniting himself with Dennis Allen, the coach that drafted him in the second round of the 2014 NFL Draft with the Oakland Raiders as Dennis was going into his third season as their head coach. Of course, as we all know, the Raiders in the early 2010s, how hideous things were. Starting off the season 0-4, and and after being blown out on September 28th in London by the Miami Dolphins, Dennis Allen was relieved of his duties as head coach of the Oakland Raiders. And it's so weird, and I forgot to mention this on the past show, but it's so weird when you think about Derek Carr the Raiders, and the Saints, it all sort of ties together. As we talked about, obviously, the connection with Dennis Allen being his first head coach. And there were three particular games for Derek Carr that sort of stand out to me, and all three of them were against the New Orleans Saints. I think back to opening day on 2016, when Derek Carr, Jack Del Rio, and the Oakland Raiders, as they were bound to have that amazing season that they did in 2016 when they went 12-4, and and ultimately before Derek Carr ended up breaking his leg on Christmas Eve. But that game on opening day against Drew Brees, Sean Payton, and the New Orleans Saints, seeing those two teams go back and forth and seeing that long, long touchdown run that Jalen Richard had for the Oakland Raiders, and then really just the guts by Jack Del Rio to go for two points there at the end, to get that two-point conversion and prevail 35-34 to over a New Orleans Saints team that was obviously favored going into that day. That was such an incredible game to watch. Myself and Kyle Williams, we had an absolute blast watching it that day. Then you move ahead to 2020 and September 21st, the first Monday night game in the city of Las Vegas the first home game for the Las Vegas Raiders, and it was against the New Orleans Saints, and once again, the Raiders prevailed. But you look back to October 30th of last year, when the Raiders traveled to the Superdome in New Orleans and were shut out of that game, and I'll never forget that afternoon and the day after, that was really when myself and Kyle Williams, when he, he said that he truly was ready for the Raiders to move on from Derek Carr. So pretty interesting how it all sort of ties together, like I just said. Now, yesterday, approximately 5 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, I guess you could say probably just as big of a storyline, if not bigger. Mark Murphy, the president and CEO of the Green Bay Packers, talking to a local reporter, basically made it sound like Aaron Rodgers' time as a Green Bay Packer is coming to an end. And what stood out to me was how Mark Murphy said that, obviously, we want to do what's best for Aaron and what is best for the Green Bay Packers. As we all know, 
Aaron Rodgers met with the New York Jets this past Monday out in California with their owner, Woody Johnson, and their head coach, Robert Sala. Even though Derek Carr met with the New York Jets back in February, to me, it it sounds like they obviously want Aaron Rodgers more than they wanted Derek Carr. And it pretty much sounds like it's only going to be a matter of time until the New York Jets and the Green Bay Packers get a deal done. And like Mark talked about, it's so interesting how when he arrived to Green Bay back in the 2000s, how this is almost sort of like deja vu when you think of it, because Brett Favre, we all know the legend that Brett Favre is, traded to the Green Bay Packers in 1992. Obviously, 16 amazing seasons when you think of it. The Super Bowl championship in 1996, coming close to another championship in 1997. But as we know with Brett Favre, the back and forth on I want to retire, I don't want to retire, I think I might retire. And ultimately, in March of 2008, when it sounded like, from my interpretation, it sounded like the Green Bay Packers wanted Brett to retire, but he truly didn't want to. And I'll never forget, it was back in May of 2008, just a couple weeks before I was graduating from high school. And I came into school one morning, and one of my best friends, Billy Lawson, says to me, he says, dude, did you see... Brett Favre's interview on David Letterman last night. And I said, no, Billy, I haven't. What what went on? And he said, David Letterman was asking Brett if he filed his retirement papers yet. And he said, no. And of course, the struggle between Brett, Mike McCarthy, the late Ted Thompson, and basically the Green Bay Packers wanting to move on and begin this new era with Aaron Rodgers, but Brett also wanting to come back and play. And then before you know it, in August of 2008, Brett Favre was a New York Jet. So it's so ironic that (laughs) Aaron Rodgers, just like his predecessor, Brett Favre, could end up becoming a New York Jet over the next couple days or so. Because when they lost that win-and-you're-in game on January 8th at home against the Detroit Lions, when Aaron threw that interception with just two and a half minutes to go, and seeing him walk off the field with Randall Cobb, And hearing Mike Tirico saying, like, you wonder, was this Aaron Rodgers' last game as a Green Bay Packer? It just sort of felt like that. I didn't feel like this was going to be his last game, period. But you could definitely get that vibe that it was his last game as a Green Bay Packer. And Johnny Glow, I'm sure Johnny Glow's probably going to hear this episode. I'm sure he's probably thinking, well, if you truly want to follow in Brett Favre's footsteps, spend a year with the Jets, then come to the Minnesota Vikings in 2024. Because it sounds like that's pretty much where Brett Favre wanted to be all along when he and the Green Bay Packers went their separate ways, that he really wanted to go to Minnesota just to stick it to Green Bay twice a year. Now, talking about Green Bay's, one of one of their biggest rivals, the Minnesota Vikings, yesterday they released Minnesota native Adam Thielen after 10 seasons with the team. And really, what an incredible story that that was for Adam, being from Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, being undrafted, and becoming a Minnesota Viking in 2013, his childhood team, and year after year after year, just seeing the progression, and just seeing him develop into really a top-notch receiver in the National Football League. Of course, as we all know, with the Minnesota Vikings during this time, you know, several close calls. I mean, the 2015 wildcard game against the Seahawks, 
2017, the Minneapolis miracle against the New Orleans Saints, only to be obliterated in the NFC Championship by the Philadelphia Eagles. And that incredible run that the Minnesota Vikings went on last year, their first year with Kevin O'Connell as their head coach, 13-4, and winning, I believe it was 11 one-score games during the season. And as we also know, in 2020, when they drafted Justin Jefferson, wide receiver out of LSU in the first round of the NFL draft, it's sad to see Adam Thielen be released from his childhood team, but as the old saying goes, it's a business. Unfortunately, it's a business. And like, you know, when I talked to Johnny Glow for a little bit yesterday, he said that, you know, it just seems like the new regime with Kevin O'Connell, it just seems like they're ready to move on. I mean, you have Justin Jefferson, who you can make the argument is the best receiver in the National Football League right now, in my opinion. You look at Justin Jefferson and you look at K.J. Osborne, and it's unfortunate to see such a great story like that end, but it sounds like Adam Thielen, he is definitely interested in signing with a team that is a Super Bowl contender. Could be Josh Manley's Dallas Cowboys. I mean, obviously, they're sort of depleted right now in their receiving core, in my opinion. It could be the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, when you look at all these mock drafts and you see top needs for the Dallas Cowboys and the Kansas City Chiefs, for both of them, they always talk about wide receivers. Could be them. Could be the Buffalo Bills. Who knows? But it'll be interesting to see where Adam Thielen lands in 2023. Also, yesterday afternoon, just a few hours later, all this talk with the NFL draft quickly approaching, April 27th, Thursday night, 8 o'clock Eastern Time. But the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bears landing the number one pick in the 2023 NFL draft after Lovey Smith and the Houston Texans would go on to win on the last day of the season against the Indianapolis Colts. And really, from the from the get-go, it sounded like the Chicago Bears were willing to trade down that number one pick. And obviously, you hear all the talk about, you know, who is the most interested in that number one pick. And throughout the week, it sounds like the Carolina Panthers, that they were the ones most interested in the number one pick. Well... To no surprise, late Friday afternoon yesterday, this is from Nick Shook, NFL Network, or NFL.com. After weeks spent wondering what it would take to pry the number one pick from Chicago's grasp, Carolina delivered the answer Friday. The Bears are trading the number one overall pick in the 2023 NFL Draft to the Panthers in exchange for a compensation package that includes two first-round picks, and receiver DJ Moore. NFL Network Ian Rappaport reported Friday. The full package of assets sent to Chicago reads like a shopping list. The ninth overall pick this year, a second-round selection in 2023, number 61 overall, originally from the San Francisco 49ers as part of their trade with Christian McCaffrey, a first-round pick in 2024, a second-round pick in 2025, and more, a receiver who just completed the first year of a three-year, $61.88 million contract with the Carolina Panthers. All of this was to acquire a coveted draft selection to be used on a franchise quarterback of the future in Carolina. The sure volume of assets, assets set to Chicago 
for one draft pick means there is no other position. Carolina will logically consider than quarterback. And after an NFL scouting combine in which two quarterbacks, Anthony Richardson from the Florida Gators and C.J. Stroud from the Ohio State Buckeyes, dazzled scouts, it's no surprise the Panthers waited only a week since the two completed their workouts to get a deal done. And that's the, the interesting thing is with the Carolina Panthers now having the number one pick, throughout this process, ever since the league year ended, you've often wondered who is going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. For the longest time, it sounded like it was going to be Jalen Carter before his off-the-field issues arose. But more often than not, that number one pick is spent on a quarterback. And for the longest time, it sounded like Bryce Young from Alabama, C.J. Stroud from Ohio State, Will Levis from Kentucky. And really, the guy that sort of set the combine world on fire this past weekend in Indianapolis was Anthony Richardson from the Florida Gators. And when you hear the comparisons of Anthony Richardson to modern NFL quarterbacks, you heard it was sort of a mixture of Cam Newton and Dak Prescott, maybe a little bit of Josh Allen as far as the mobility and the arm. So you sort of thought like, well, if if they had Cam Newton for that long of a time, maybe that first pick is going to be on Anthony Richardson after his stock just went through the roof this past weekend. But I read a report last night on Twitter that more than likely, it sounds like the Carolina Panthers could be spending that number one pick on C.J. Stroud from the Ohio State Buckeyes. It's going to be interesting to see it all pan out because the Houston Texans with the second overall pick, to me it sounds like the Houston Texans have solely been interested in Bryce Young from Alabama this whole time. Then you look at the Arizona Cardinals with the third overall pick and their new head coach, Jonathan Gannon. Obviously, Jonathan is a defensive-minded coach. I personally feel like that pick will probably be on an edge rusher. I'm going to say maybe Will Anderson from Alabama. So then we move ahead to the fourth pick with the Indianapolis Colts. Obviously, no stability at quarterback whatsoever since Andrew Luck abruptly retired in the middle of the 2019 NFL preseason. You had Phillip Rivers in 2020 before he retired. You had Carson Wentz, who choked on the last day of the 2021 NFL season. That's another interesting thing. Sounds like the Kansas City Chiefs could be interested in Carson Wentz to be Patrick Mahomes' backup. And as we know, if there's one person that could repair a broken Carson Wentz, it's Andy Reid. I mean, the man has been... Incredible with quarterbacks throughout his career. Brett Favre in Green Bay, Donovan McNabb in Philadelphia, Michael Vick after he was released from prison, and then, of course, Patrick Mahomes in the 2017 NFL Draft, trading all the way up to 10th overall to get him. And look at how, really, how Patrick Mahomes is sort of revolutionizing the game right now as we speak with two Super Bowl championships, three Super Bowl appearances, and five consecutive AFC championship appearances. So you never know. But I would say with the fourth pick, based on my assumptions, if the Carolina Panthers take C.J. Stroud and the Houston Texans take Bryce Young, I'm going to say that in my belief is the Indianapolis Colts, I'm going to say that they go with Will Levis, quarterback from Kentucky. But also at the same time, 
they hired the other coordinator from the Philadelphia Eagles. They hired Shane Steichen, who was their offensive coordinator. And when you look at Jalen Hurts and you look at his mobility, it almost makes you wonder, you know, the Indianapolis Colts, would they rather have that dual threat like Anthony Richardson? So, you know, I'm sort of looking at this right now, and I would probably say with the fifth pick, the Seattle Seahawks, obviously with Jalen Carter's draft stock sort of falling after all of these issues have come about, it wouldn't shock me one bit, one bit if Pete Carroll and John Schneider, if they took Jalen Carter with the fifth overall pick. Now, the sixth pick with the Detroit Lions, I would have to say... If I were Dan Campbell, and I love Dan Campbell, if I were Dan Campbell, I would probably go with Devin Witherspoon from Illinois. That kid is an absolute missile. So that leads us to the seventh overall pick with the Las Vegas Raiders. So let's say that Anthony Richardson does, in fact, go to the Indianapolis Colts at four. Then naturally, I would have to say that the Las Vegas Raiders and Josh McDaniels Dave Ziegler, Mark Davis, I would say that that pick would be spent on Will Levis from Kentucky. And talking to Kyle Williams, you know, he said that probably his top two right now would be C.J. Stroud from Ohio State or Anthony Richardson from the Gators. But Kyle said last night, he said, knowing the way that the Raiders operate, watch them take Hendon Hooker from Tennessee, who's coming off of an ACL injury. Only the Raiders, as Kyle likes to say. So... This is definitely one of my favorite times in the year for the National Football League. You have the free agency talk, the combine talk, the NFL draft is a month away. It's definitely one of my favorite times of the year. And, of course, the whole situation with Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens, the non-exclusive franchise tag, you would have to do basically an entire three hours on that whole mess right now in Baltimore. You know, and all these teams saying that they're not interested in him, in him, like the Raiders and the Falcons, the two teams that have been interested in him the most. The Miami Dolphins saying that they're going to pick up the fifth-year option for Tua Vailoa, which is kind of head-scratching in my opinion, not based on performance, but just based on Tua's health. I mean, for a kid that suffered three concussions, September 25th, against the Buffalo Bills, September 29th against the Bengals, and then Christmas Day against the Green Bay Packers, and has not returned since then. You're meaning to tell me that, that you truly believe that you could depend on Tua Tunga-Vailoa as your long-term starter? I'm sorry, I'm just having a hard time grasping with that. Because, you know, it sort of makes all the sense in the world why you hear all these rumors about Tom Brady possibly being a Miami Dolphin in 2023. And if not a Miami Dolphin... Obviously, the San Francisco 49ers. Brock Purdy, he had the surgery on his elbow yesterday morning. And based off of everything that I've read and heard and talking to Fishboy from KRZ, diehard San Francisco 49ers fan since he was a kid, this is going to be very, very close as far as the possibility of Brock Purdy being able to play on opening day for the San Francisco 49ers because the recovery process itself is six months, the surgery that Brock Purdy had. It wasn't Tommy John surgery. That would have kept him out for the entire 2023 season. But this whole process, six months, so you figure March 10th. And what day is opening day in the National Football League? September 10th. I mean, they are truly going to be cutting it close here. 
I don't expect them, obviously, to be in the kickoff game September 7th against the Kansas City Chiefs. I still say if, if that was up to me, I would have a rematch of Super Bowl 57 with the Chiefs and the Eagles. So you figure with the San Francisco 49ers being a runner-up in the NFC Championship to the Philadelphia Eagles, you figure they'll be playing on Sunday, September 10th. And obviously, since they're out in California, you figure, okay, maybe a 425 game on Fox with Greg Olson and Kevin Burkhart, or even 820 on NBC. And it wouldn't shock me one bit if one of those late games, whether it's the 425 game on Fox or Sunday Night Football on NBC, it wouldn't shock me one bit if they had a rematch with the Dallas Cowboys, who they beat 19-12 to in the divisional round of the playoffs. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's another interesting layer that we have to dive into. Talking to Josh Manley, it definitely sounds like Ezekiel Elliott's time as a running back for the Dallas Cowboys. It definitely sounds like it's the end of the line, especially if they franchise tag Tony Pollard, who was coming off of that, that gruesome injury in that playoff game against the San Francisco 49ers. And talking to Josh Manley, of course, we will be having our draft show on Saturday evening, April 22nd. The Average Joes, myself, Josh Manley, Timmy Bevan, Johnny Glow, James West, who Raiders fan who called it right then and there when we did our show back in January. You know, James West said Derek Carr is going to be a New Orleans Saint. He's going to reunite with Dennis Allen. Now, back in February, when he heard all the talk about him visiting with the New York Jets, he was like, well, you know, there's always that possibility. But James West, he definitely stuck stuck to his gun saying that Derek Carr was going to be a New Orleans Saint. So talking to Josh with the Dallas Cowboys having the 26th pick in the 2023 NFL Draft, of course, you know, Jerry Jones has never been afraid to trade up or trade down in the draft. And... You know, Josh was saying that personally he would love if they could trade up for Smith Najiba, the wide receiver from Ohio State. He said that he's even willing to have them take Brian Robinson, the running back from the Texas Longhorns. Myself, personally, with the Pittsburgh Steelers at 17, it sounds like obviously the main focus at the combine for Mike Tomlin, Omar Khan, and the staff, it sounds like the main focus obviously was defensive backs because, as we know for the past dozen years or so, one of the biggest weaknesses for the Pittsburgh Steelers not only has it been the offensive line, but it's definitely been their secondary. And as you guys know, one of my favorite Pittsburgh Steelers of all time, still to this day, Joey Porter. What else can you say? That man was an absolute beast on the field and had no fear whatsoever. No fear. And it's pretty obvious that I would love if his son, Joey Porter Jr., is still available at 17. Nobody else I'd, I'd rather have the Steelers take. Now, obviously, you look at Devin Witherspoon from Illinois. I would be that's, – that's one of the few people that I would be willing for the Pittsburgh Steelers to trade up into the top ten for. But talking to Jason Boone, obviously, with the Philadelphia Eagles having those two first-round picks – the 10th pick that they got from the New Orleans Saints and the 30th pick being the runner-up in the Super Bowl because don't forget the Miami Dolphins, they had to forfeit their first-round pick, obviously, with all of the tampering with Stephen Ross and the tanking allegations and whatnot. Boone said that if Devin Witherspoon is available at 10, that he would absolutely love for him to be a Philadelphia Eagle because it sounds like a lot of those pieces to that defense, you know, Darius Slay could be heading out the door since... Matt Patricia, his old head coach in Detroit that he butted heads with, 
could be coming to the Philadelphia Eagles coaching staff. There's, and then you look at Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, it sounds like he's pretty much done in Philadelphia. So right now I would say wide receiver and defensive back, definitely two of the biggest needs for the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, moving ahead to NASCAR this weekend at Phoenix Raceway. What I really loved about this particular weekend at Phoenix, and I mean, we're, we're going to have qualifying here in just a little bit, 2 o'clock Eastern time. And we will go through the qualifying order here in just a little bit. I absolutely love the next-gen car. And I love how much racier the car is. 670 horsepower, 4-inch rear spoiler. I have absolutely loved the car, obviously, aside from the safety concerns that I've had about it. When you look at Kurt Busch at Pocono Raceway and Alex Bowman at Texas Motor Speedway, how it seems like it's, it's easier to get injured in this car than it was in the Gen 6 car. But it seems like some of the most popular racing in NASCAR over the past several years, and really for quite a while, some of the most popular racing in NASCAR is short track racing, road course racing, which, as you guys know, I feel like NASCAR has gone a little overzealous with the amount of road courses that we have on the schedule. But when they debuted this next-gen car last year, the worst racing that we had all year long ended up being the short track racing and the road courses. I mean, a championship race at Phoenix was absolutely terrible. I'm not, and that's not sour grapes. That's not me saying it because Joey Logano won the championship. I mean, that was a terrible race. Absolutely terrible. You, you couldn't pass anyone. The only way you were going to pass people was in the pits, just like Martinsville Speedway in the spring of last year. Look at the road courses. Yeah, it was cool to see Daniel Suarez get his first win at Sonoma. It was cool to see Tyler Reddick get his first win at Road America. That Road America race had two caution flags, the stage breaks. And I am so glad that NASCAR is doing away with stage breaks at the road courses this year because that would ruin everything. That would ruin the strategy. It would ruin the racing. So I love that they're going to keep keep the green flag out and then, wait. you know, well, they, they said they're not going to wave the green-white checkered when it'd be the end of the stage, but they're still going to award points. So NASCAR realized our fans love short tracks, our fans love road courses, but right now it's the worst racing that we have in NASCAR. So what do they do? They came up with, personally, I think an excellent package, an excellent package to improve the racing at flat tracks like Phoenix and New Hampshire and Martinsville. And then, of course, the road courses, all the zillions of road courses that we go to anymore. So NASCAR cut the rear spoilers on the car from 4 inches to 2 inches. And the diffuser strikes that they would have, there was three of them, the bottom of the race car, they're taking those out, and they're taking them from underneath where the engine would be. And... Bob Pockers from Fox Sports was saying that this should cut the downforce by, I would say, maybe about 30% or so. And you saw it early on in practice last night at Phoenix Raceway. You saw Joey Logano, Ryan Blaney, BJ McLeod. You saw these guys having to wrestle the car and getting loose and wiggling through the center of the corner, which you didn't see last year at the short tracks and the road courses. Excuse me, Clint Boyer even said it himself. He said, he was saying to Mike Joy and Danica Patrick, he said, I love this. He said, they're having to wheel race cars again at these kind of tracks. So 
I love the package that NASCAR has come up with. And of course, the other thing you got to take into consideration was the wet weather package that has come into effect this year. And it's for the smaller racetracks, like a Phoenix, a New Hampshire, Martinsville, has been added for these tracks, aside from Dover and Martinsville, which we know are steeply high-banked racetracks. I think that that would, that would be an absolute disaster, trying to race in the rain at Dover or Bristol. Excuse me, yeah, Bristol. So, you have the windshield wipers. They're right in the center of the windshield, right at about the 12 o'clock position. You have the, the mud flaps on the back of the car. So, I really got to applaud NASCAR for the efforts that they have been making to make these cars more racier on the short tracks and the road courses. And because of this new package, we were able to have a Friday practice session, a 50-minute Friday practice session. Not this crap that we've had over the past year and a half or so where, oh, you know, 20 minutes for 15, 20 minutes for group A, 15, 20 minutes for group B. I'm sorry, but that that is just stupid in my opinion. So I loved NASCAR having this lengthy practice late evening at Phoenix Raceway last night. And to see guys be able to make 50 some 40 50 some laps make a race run make a few qualifying runs it felt like a real race weekend again and the traditionalist in me obviously i wish you know practice and qualify on friday then have another practice on saturday and go race sunday that's the way i wish that they would still do this not just for my own personal sake but for any race fan you want that experience of a three-day weekend at the track, you know, Friday, you see them practice, you see them qualify, you sort of practice again on Saturday before all the preliminary races, whether it's Xfinity, whether it's trucks, and then, of course, the big day on Sunday with the cup race. So, obviously, with them being at Phoenix Raceway, the wet weather package will not be necessary for this weekend, as Today at Phoenix, it'll be 78 degrees and cloudy, and then for the race tomorrow, it's going to be sunny and 81 degrees. God, I wish I was out in Phoenix right now, compared to 34 degrees here in northeast Pennsylvania. So, we had a 50-minute practice last night at Phoenix Raceway, and we're going to have another 50-minute practice two weeks from now. Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, Friday, March 24th, 2.05 Eastern Time, 1.05 Local Time. Now, going back to the last show, obviously, I think the biggest topic that we obviously had to cover was Chase Elliott's leg injury and how Josh Berry was tabbed Friday night at Las Vegas Motor Speedway to drive the number nine Napa Auto Parts Chevrolet. And for Josh, the unfortunate thing is no laps whatsoever in a next-gen car. And he definitely had to tiptoe that weekend at Las Vegas not to tear the car up. He qualified 32nd, he finished 29th, and people gave Josh so much unnecessary shit on Twitter Sunday night saying, oh, Josh Berry is such a joke, he should stay in Xfinity, he doesn't deserve to be driving Chase Elliott's car, oh, what the hell was that? He'd never been in a friggin' next-gen car until Saturday morning at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. What the hell are you expecting out of him? Seriously. It's not like a Gen 6, it's not like the car tomorrow, it's not like the Gen 4. This is a completely different race car. Completely different to what Josh races in the Xfinity Series on Saturdays. And so, I, it infuriated me Sunday night seeing so many people saying, Oh, 
oh, it's only right for Jimmy Johnson to drive the nine car until Chase Elliott comes back. That ship has sailed. Jimmy has his own car with the 84 car. He wants to run from time to time. We don't need that, okay? You need a younger talent like Josh Berry. You have to give him a chance to prove himself. And I was so happy on Tuesday when Hendrick Motorsports, they provided an update on Chase Elliott, and they said, you know, that Chase, the surgery, of course, was successful. It was a three-hour surgery on Friday night in Colorado. He's currently rehabbing in Colorado. For the time being, it sounds like Chase Elliott will miss a minimum of six weeks. So you figure it's eight days today, March 11th, eight days since he broke his leg. So that's one week. Atlanta two weeks, Coda, three weeks, Richmond, four, Bristol Dirt Race, Easter Weekend, five, Martinsville Speedway, six. So you figure, based on that estimation, Chase Elliott, if everything goes according to plan, would not return until April 23rd at Talladega Super Speedway. I do not know how I I would feel about that. And I get that, yeah, it's Talladega, All you got to do is just mash the gas wide open with that right foot of yours. I get that. But Talladega arguably is the most dangerous track that we go to. If Chase Elliott gets caught up in a wreck there and lands on his roof or goes through the air, you have to wonder, God forbid, if he were to re-injure it. That's why if Hendrick Motorsports, if they do make this decision to return Chase Elliott April 23rd at Talladega, they should do what Denny Hamlin did in 2013 when he had the back injury, and what Tony Stewart did in 2016 when he had a back injury, and they were making their return in that race. Run at the back of the pack until the first caution flag comes out. You know, Denny put Brian Vickers in the car. Tony Stewart put Ty Dillon in the car. And obviously, Hendrick Motorsports, in this case, would put Josh Berry in the car. It's not worth it. I don't even know know if, if Chase should even return at Dover on April 30th. And I get that he's the the defending winner of Dover from last year, but it's a steep, high-banked racetrack. Honestly, at this point, I think the easiest place for Chase to return at would be May 7th at Kansas Speedway, but that's just my opinion. But I was so happy on Tuesday that Hendrick Motorsports announced that Josh Berry will be driving the number 9 Chevrolet at all the oval races until Chase Elliott comes back. So Josh will be in the car tomorrow at Phoenix Raceway, next weekend at Atlanta, April 2nd at Richmond, April 9th for the Bristol Dirt Race at his home track, and April 16th at Martinsville Speedway. And as we talked about before, Josh, the first Xfinity win of his career came in April of 2021 at Martinsville Speedway. He's won the late model race there in 2019. Used to be the Taco Bell 300. It's one of the biggest late model races in the country, if not the biggest. Probably the only one that I think would maybe rival it would be the All-American 400 at the Nashville Fairgrounds. This kid deserves this chance. He deserves this opportunity. And listening to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s podcast, you know, he said that last weekend, you know, he, Amy, Island, Nicole, they were on vacation at the beach. Obviously, you know, he saw everything unfold. I'm sure Rick Hendrick had to contact himself and his sister Kelly when Chase broke his leg and said, you know, could we get Josh to drive the nine car on Sunday? And knowing Dale Earnhardt Jr., I'm sure he didn't even hesitate. Probably didn't even take him a second. He'd be like, absolutely put Josh in that nine car. And Dale said that he vehemently or 
fiercely followed every lap time that Josh made during that race on Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And there were times, even though they finished 29th, but Josh had, had a throttle issue that he had to deal with throughout the day. There were times during that race, during a tire run, that Josh was running top 10 lap times with the leaders. And Dale said that it bothered him so much on Sunday night that Josh didn't get the finish that, that he wanted. Dale Jr. actually said that Sunday night he couldn't even sleep. He could hardly even sleep because he was thinking to himself like, I hope that Josh isn't one and done in the nine car. I hope that he, he could race Phoenix, Atlanta, Richmond, you know. And I think that just shows the pull that Dale Earnhardt Jr. has with Hendrick Motorsports. Obviously, Hendrick Motorsports and Junior Motorsports, they've been working together since 2008. There was three owners of Junior Motorsports. Obviously, Dale Earnhardt Jr., his older sister, Kelly Earnhardt Miller. But that third owner in Junior Motorsports is Rick Hendrick. I mean, essentially, Hendrick Motorsports, the Bush Series team that they had at the end of 2007, it just morphed right in, into Junior Motorsports. And that's part of the reason why Dale Jr. and Kelly, why they still haven't moved Junior Motorsports up to the Cup Series yet. Number one, obviously, the charter. The charters are obnoxious. You're talking at least $20 million to have a guaranteed starting spot in the field. And the other reason is Rick Hendrick would have to give up his ownership stake in Junior Motorsports because it would be counted basically as a fifth Hendrick Motorsports car. But you know what? I'm sure if everything were to line up, I'm sure that Rick would be willing to give up that ownership stake, but at the same time provide the race cars, provide the engines, just like you know Rick Hendrick has done for so many other teams throughout the years. So I'm absolutely thrilled that Josh will get at least five starts in the car. As I said, tomorrow at Phoenix, Atlanta, Richmond, the Bristol Dirt Race, and Martinsville. Now, five out of six weeks, so you're thinking to yourself like, okay, well, who's going to be in the car for Coda? Obviously, as I talked about on the last show, I, you know, Josh is a short track racer. He's never really been much of a road course racer. So I went through a list of drivers last week that I felt were worthy of driving the nine car at Coda on March 26th. And I talked about Jordan Taylor. He's a, a sports car race. His father, Wayne, his brother, Ricky, you know, he's won the 24 hours of Daytona before, and he works very, very closely with Hendrick Motorsports and their drivers on their road course craft. I mean, look at Chase Elliott, how he's dominated road courses for the past five years. Look at Kyle Larson from the moment he got over to Hendrick Motorsports in 2021. William Byron, if he could just piece a race together, on a road course, look at what he could do. He could qualify. He just needs to get the finishes. And it pains me to say this, but Alex Bowman. Alex, he's a good road course racer. He finished second at Coda last year. He's had several top tens at Sonoma. I'll be the first to say it. As far as Alex being a good road course racer, he definitely didn't get it from Dale Jr. <laughs> I mean, Jr. got better towards the end of his career at road courses, but he'd be the first to tell you. Road courses were not his thing. So Jordan obviously has a very, very close relationship with Hendrick Motorsports and their drivers. I talked about Mike Rockenfeller, who's going to be driving the stock car Camaro for Hendrick Motorsports at the 24 Hours of Le Mans with Jimmy Johnson, and Jensen Button, the 2009 Formula One world champion. So Hendrick Motorsports did announce that Jordan Taylor will be driving the number nine Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet on March 26th at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. So an incredible opportunity for Jordan. I hope he does well, and I hope that more opportunities come. 
And I mean, hey, who even knows, you know, he was on the Dale Jr. download in 2021. Maybe he can do a few Xfinity races for Jr. Motorsports on the road courses. You never know. But definitely extremely excited for Josh Berry and extremely excited for Jordan Taylor to be able to drive for arguably the greatest team in NASCAR history over the, these next couple of weeks. And that's why I, the title of this episode is Show Me What You Got. Show me what you got. Especially when Dale Earnhardt Jr. has championed for Josh Berry for such a long time. And we all remember the Jay-Z music video back in 2006 himself, Jay-Z, Danica Patrick, when they were racing through the streets of Monaco. And of course, obviously my favorite Jay-Z song, Show Me What You Got. So Josh Berry, show me what you got. Because I would love to see this kid race in the Cup Series full-time come 2024. I would, I would love it. I mean, that would be such a great rookie class. Josh Berry, Zane Smith. I mean, hey, maybe even Austin Hill with how dominant he's been in Xfinity so far this year. Two out of the first three races, Daytona and Las Vegas. So I'm extremely excited that Josh will get this opportunity to show the world what he is capable of at NASCAR's highest level. And I wish him all the best tomorrow and over the next month or so. As I talked about with Jensen Button, I, you know, I've followed his Formula One career from the time he made his debut in 2000 with the Williams team. And then, of course, Renault, Lucky Strike, BAR Honda, finally getting that first win of his career in 2006 in the rain at Hungary. And then, of course, the struggles the, the next few years afterwards, 07, 08. And then that dominant season in 2009 when Honda left Formula One for the time being, and the team was bought out by Ross Braun, who was a huge, huge part of Michael Schumacher's Ferrari dominance and his Benetton dominance in 94 95, and then how Ross and Michael Schumacher, how they were able to turn around Ferrari in the late 90s and win five championships in a row from 2000 to 2004, but how Ross bought that team out, got engines from Mercedes, and Jensen dominated the year and would win the 2009 Formula One World Championship. And then, of course, he would spend the last six years of his career racing for McLaren Mercedes. So Jensen did take part in the first ever United States Grand Prix at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, November 18th, 2012. He ended up finishing fifth that day in his McLaren. And then... Late Thursday afternoon into the evening, it was announced that Jensen Button will drive the number 15 Mobile One Ford March 26th Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. This is a car prepared by Stuart Haas Racing. But not just Circuit of the Americas. Jensen will also race on July 2nd, the inaugural Chicago Street Course, and August 13th, making his return to the Indianapolis road course. Now, Formula One, they raced on the Indianapolis road course from 2000 to 2007. So Jensen will become the first driver to compete on both the Indianapolis road course in Formula One and NASCAR. It's, it's really, really cool. It's crazy how, like, the deal came about for him to run the Camaro at Le Mans for Hendrick Motorsports, and Jensen said right then and there, I want to do some NASCAR races, and not just a, a one-off appearance at a road course. Like, I want, I this is what I want to do. I mean, hey, you know, he's 
He's 43 years old. He still has a desire to race. He hasn't raced full-time in Formula One since 2016. But it's just really, really cool to see these guys that have been so renowned in the world. I mean, really across the globe. So Jensen, just taking a look here, seven starts in the United States Grand Prix. Obviously, he withdrew from the race in 2005 with the debacle with the Michelin tires, how they were blown out that weekend, and Ralph Schumacher suffering a back injury that kept him out. Jensen's best finish on the Indianapolis road course was in an eighth-place finish in 2002 when he was driving for Renault. Now, as you guys know, as someone that not only loves NASCAR, but loves Formula One as well. Obviously, I was a huge, huge Michael Schumacher fan growing up. I never really got the chance to experience the Ayrton Senna era when he dominated Formula One. Sadly, I was four years old when Ayrton was killed at the San Marino Grand Prix in 1994. So for me, my go-to guy when it came to Formula One was always Michael Schumacher. And when Michael retired for the first time at the end of 2006, naturally I went with the Iceman himself, Kimi Raikkonen. And Kimi, he took over Michael Schumacher's car in 2007 at Ferrari, won the championship that year at the Brazilian Grand Prix, as we know. That's the last Ferrari champion that we have had in Formula One. And then, you know, Kimi, he left Formula One at the end of 2009, came back in 2012 ultimately retired from Formula One after the 2021 season was over and made his NASCAR Cup Series debut August 21st last year at Watkins Glen International in the rain. Got all the way up to eighth place or so before being caught up in a wreck. Kimi Raikkonen will also be taking part in the NASCAR Cup Series race March 26th Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, driving that Project 91 car for Justin Marks and Pitbull, and being a teammate to Ross Chastain, who scored the first win of his career in this race last year, and Daniel Suarez. Both of them are incredible on road courses. I mean, hey, like we talked about, Ross got his first win at Coda, Daniel Suarez got his first win at Sonoma, and for Kimi Raikkonen, 2007 Formula One World Championship, 21 wins to his name, the 2005 Monaco Grand Prix. Jensen won the 2009 Monaco Grand Prix. But 21 wins to Kimi's name. And that 21st and final victory of his Formula One career came at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, October 21st, 2018, before he was, I'll say it, kicked out the door by Ferrari for Charles Leclerc, who, in my opinion, is probably the most overrated driver in Formula One. You know, Kimi, unfortunately, had to drive the last three years of his career with the Alfa Romeo. The car was terrible, and it made total sense why he retired at the end of 2021. He just wasn't having fun anymore. But, I mean, this is a star-studded lineup that we are going to have for Coda on March 26th. Jordan Taylor, Jensen Button, Kimi Raikkonen, Connor Daly driving the 50 car for Floyd Mayweather and Tony Uri Jr. And it also sounds like Jimmy Johnson, you know, when he was on NASCAR and Fox back in February when they were at the clash and he was being asked like, what races are you going to do in this 84 car? And Jimmy said that he wanted one of those races to be circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. So for the first time in the next gen era, we might have a full field of 40 cars 
for the first time aside from the Daytona 500. Obviously, with the next gen and the low inventory that we've had, obviously, with the supply chain issues, for the most part, we've had 30, the 36 chartered cars show up to these races. You know, the restrictor plate races, you'll get like the 62 to show up, a couple other cars here and there. But for the most part, lately, it seems like the only race that has been fielding a full field of 40 cars has obviously been the Daytona 500, the biggest race of the year, also the biggest race of the year from a monetary standpoint. So it's going to be really, really exciting to see so many big names taking part in this race two weeks from now, Coda. Also, keeping it in the Hendrick Motorsports family, on Wednesday, they announced that they will be bringing back their number 17 HendrickCars.com Chevrolet for four NASCAR Xfinity Series races this year. William Byron will drive the car March 25th at Circuit of the Americas. And then Kyle Larson taking part in the inaugural NASCAR Xfinity race at Sonoma Raceway on June 10th and also running on September 2nd at Darlington Raceway, as we all know how close Kyle came to winning that race last year in that number 17 Hendrick Motorsports car before he and Sheldon Creed sort of slammed into each other on the last lap of that race, and Noah Gregson snuck on by for the victory. And then Alex Bowman will drive the 17 car on August 19th at Watkins Glen. But William, it's not just the Xfinity Series that he's going to be running in. He will be reuniting with Kyle Busch Motorsports for three truck races this year. April 8th, the night before Easter, the Bristol Dirt Race, May 12th at Darlington Raceway, and May 20th at North Wilkesboro Speedway, the day before the All-Star Race. So obviously with Kyle Busch going over to RCR, reuniting with Chevrolet for the first time since 2007, it was they were able to establish reestablish that connection again. Talking about, excuse me, talking about Kyle Busch Motorsports and William Byron, obviously with, with it being a Chevrolet, and HendrickCars.com will be on the truck for those three races, the Bristol Dirt Race, Darlington, and North Wilkesboro. Now, of course, William Byron, everybody knows, you know, Hendrick Motorsports, Junior Motorsports in 2017 when they won the Xfinity Championship together, but he did spend a year away from Hendrick Motorsports and Junior Motorsports in 2016, driving the number nine Toyota for Kyle Busch Motorsports, seven wins on the year, one blown engine away from going to Miami with a shot at the championship. So it's really, really cool to see William reunite with Kyle Busch, especially after Rudy Fugel, who was his crew chief, that amazing season in 2016, how when Chad Canal stepped down at the end of 2020, how they were able to reunite William and Rudy on the 24 car at Hendrick Motorsports. So, as I was saying, exciting times ahead, whether it's this weekend at Phoenix, Circa of the Americas, the short track package, the two-inch rear spoiler. You know, I'm definitely excited for these next several weeks in NASCAR. Before we resume our NASCAR talk regarding this weekend at Phoenix Raceway, talking about practice last night, qualifying later today at 2 o'clock Eastern time, and also some talk in the garage area of some things that were found on all four Hendrick Motorsports cars and what the repercussions could be moving forward. We have some very sad news to pass along in the National Football League world. Earlier this morning, just a little before 11.30, the Minnesota Vikings sadly announced that their legendary head coach, Bud Grant, 
who guided the team to four Super Bowl appearances. 1969 against the Kansas City Chiefs, 1973 against the Miami Dolphins, 1974 against the Pittsburgh Steelers, and 1976 against the Oakland Raiders. Sadly, Bud Grant has passed away this morning at the age of 95 years old. They released a statement talking about the Minnesota Vikings. They said, We are absolutely heartbroken to announce that legendary Minnesota Vikings head coach and Hall of Famer Bud Grant has passed away this morning at the age of 95. We, like all Vikings and NFL fans, are shocked and saddened by this terrible news. Bud was just two months away from turning 96 years old. What a man Bud Grant was. And I think what stands out to me with Bud Grant, as we're going to talk about here for just a little bit before we resume our NASCAR talk, I will never forget, Johnny Glow is going to hate me bringing up this game, but I can't help it. So the Minnesota Vikings, as we all remember, when they were established in 1961, and they played outdoors at Metropolitan Stadium. And I mean, think of those brutal winters that Minnesota has. I mean, you're talking sub-zero temperatures. Matter of fact, my mom's cousin, Joe McCluskey, he now lives down in Austin, Texas, but he and his family, they lived in Cottage Lakes, Minnesota for quite a long time. And I remember Joe always used to say how in Minnesota, it would snow in October and it would snow in late April. That is how brutal the wintertime is. And then once, once the summertime rolls around, it is unbearably hot up there. So the Minnesota Vikings played at Metropolitan Stadium for a number of years before they moved into the Hubert Humphrey Metrodome. And of course, we all remember with the Metrodome, how they played there until 2013. Obviously, there were some issues with the roof, how the roof caved in when they had that, that blizzard in 2010 on the night before they were going to play the New York Giants. But anyway, my point is, when they closed down the Metrodome at the end of the 2013 season and started tearing it down so they could make room for that beautiful stadium that they have, U.S. Bank Stadium, the Minnesota Vikings, they returned to playing outdoors. They played at TCF Bank Stadium, which is where the Minnesota Golden Gophers play at. They were playing there for the 2014 and 2015 NFL seasons. So January of 2016, they were hosting a wild card playoff game against Pete Carroll's Seattle Seahawks. And I will never, ever forget how that weekend in Minnesota, the temperatures were well below zero. And they bring Bud Grant out to be the honorary captain for the coin toss. And here is 88-year-old Bud Grant going on 89, walking out to the middle of the field, sub-zero temperatures, with a purple polo shirt on. 88 years old. It's below zero, and he has a short sleeve polo shirt on. Right to the very end, that man looked like he could still kick somebody's ass. He was absolutely amazing. Now, for Bud, he was born on May 20th, 1927 in Superior, Wisconsin, and <clears throat> played for the University of Minnesota in college. He was drafted 
1950, the very first round, the 14th pick overall by the Philadelphia Eagles. Two seasons as a player with the Philadelphia Eagles before four seasons with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the CFL, the Canadian Football League. But then Bud's coaching career began in 1957. He was their head coach from 1957 to 1966. And the other amazing thing about Bud Grant, everybody remembers Bud Grant for his time as a head coach, specifically with the Minnesota Vikings. But people forget that Bud Grant actually played in the NBA. He was drafted, not only in 1950, not only was he drafted in the first round of the NFL draft by the Philadelphia Eagles, he was drafted in the fourth round by the Minneapolis Lakers. You're thinking, what the hell? Minneapolis Lakers? That's right. Before they were the Los Angeles Lakers, the Lakers began in Minneapolis in 1947. And they ended up staying in Minneapolis until I believe it was 1958 when they moved out to Los Angeles. And of course, that was right about the time that, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, that they moved all the way out to Los Angeles. Pretty crazy to think about. So Bud actually played in the NBA as well. He was a forward. His numbers were 14 and 20. Didn't last too long, 1949 and 1951, but he was a part of that championship team in 1950. So, as I said, 10 seasons as head coach of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and then became the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings in 1967. And really, Bud, it was just incredible the longevity that he had as a head coach. So he was hired, wow, March 10th, 1967, taking over for Norm Van Brocklin. Obviously, everybody remembers him as a Philadelphia Eagle. But what really stood out with Bud was how disciplined he was with these Minnesota Vikings teams. When you look at Fran Tarkenton, Carl Eller, Jim Thomas, Mick Tinglehoff, you know, they created some amazing teams, the Minnesota Vikings did, under Bud Grant in the 60s and throughout the 70s. And I mean, really, it's such a shame how four Super Bowl appearances, and just like Marv Levy would end up doing with the Buffalo Bills, how every single time coming up empty-handed, losing Super Bowl four, 23 to seven to the Kansas City Chiefs, 24 to seven, Super Bowl eight against the Miami Dolphins, 16 to six, Super Bowl nine against the Pittsburgh Steelers when they would win their first championship, and then ultimately 32 to 14 in Super Bowl 11 against the Oakland Raiders. But you know what? That didn't take away anything from what Bud was able to accomplish in his career. When you look at his statistics as a head coach, in the National Football League. In the NFL, he racked up 158 wins, 96 losses, and five ties. And of course, when you look at the playoffs, you know, a record of 10 and 12 in the playoffs. But the Minnesota Vikings, so he made the playoffs for the first time in 1968, 69 and 70. They went 12 and 2 both years, 11 and 3 in 1971. And then a bit of an off year in 72. That was right about the time that they were able to bring Fran Tarkenton back from the New York Giants. But that run that they went on throughout the 70s, 12 and 2 in 1973, 10 and 4 in 1974, 12 and 2 in 1975, and probably undoubtedly the most controversial loss in Bud Grant's career 
was that divisional game against the Dallas Cowboys, the original Hail Mary, when Roger Staubach, when he threw that bomb to Drew Pearson and no passing interference was called, and obviously a lot of the Vikings fans were very, very ticked off. Then in 76 to go, 11-2-1, 77 made it all the way back against the Dallas Cowboys to lose in the NFC Championship, and then in 78 to go 8-7-1, but ultimately lose in the divisional round to the Los Angeles Rams. Bud, he did stick with it for several more seasons. After going 8-8 eight and eight in 1983, he decided to retire. But obviously, that first year without him was a complete disaster with Les Steckel as head coach. The Minnesota Vikings went 3-13 in 1984. They convinced Bud to come back for one more season in 1985. He did. They went 7-9, but this time Bud retired for good. But the amazing thing about Bud Grant was for a guy that coached from this team from 1967 to 1983, spent one year in retirement and came back for a year in 1985 before Jerry Burns took over the team. Even after Bud retired for good at the end of 1985, he still was a consultant on the Minnesota Vikings from 1986 right up until, sadly, his passing earlier this morning. And when they did open U.S. Bank Stadium in 2016, just seeing him at all of those games, seeing him blow the Gallahorn right before the games would begin, it was absolutely incredible to see this man still so active and still so involved with the National Football League into his 90s. He was NFL Coach of the Year in 1969, obviously a part of the Minnesota Vikings Ring of Honor, part of their 50 Greatest Vikings the 25th anniversary team, the 40th anniversary team, along with the CFL Coach of the Year in 1965, and obviously a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. So definitely a very, very sad loss in the National Football League. And I mean, really, think of all those great coaches that we had during that time frame in the early 70s that sadly are no longer here with us. Obviously, Bud Grant, Chuck Knoll, John Madden, Don Shula, Tom Landry. That was definitely a who's who of coaching in the National Football League. That truly was the golden era as far as coaching is concerned. So, very, very sad loss for the NFL world, for the Minnesota Vikings. My thoughts and prayers go out to the Vikings organization and to Bud's children as he is now reunited with his wife, Pat, who passed away in 2009. And just talking to Josh Manley a little while ago, obviously, as you guys remember, his his father, John, was a diehard Minnesota Vikings fan right from the time that he was a kid. And just talking to Josh a little while ago when I informed him that Bud Grant had passed away because Josh was a huge fan of Bud Grant, obviously, with how active he was into his 90s. Josh texted me a little while ago and said, maybe John from Plymouth will finally meet him. No doubt in my mind, buddy. So, looking ahead to this weekend at Phoenix Raceway, as I said, we had a 50-minute practice session yesterday evening. Well, evening, East Coast time. 
But taking a look at the results of yesterday's practice at Phoenix Raceway for the NASCAR Cup Series. Kyle Larson was the fastest car in practice, ran 59 laps during the session. Ryan Blaney was second, only three one-hundredths of a second off of Kyle's time. Third was Alex Bowman at his home track. Fourth was Joey Logano. And fifth was the defending winner of this race, Chase Briscoe. Sixth in car six, Brad Keselowski. And the thing that I'm hoping for with Brad is Phoenix. Everybody knows that Brad struggled so much at Phoenix last year. His first year as an owner-driver, he finished 23rd in this race last year. And then ultimately 35th in the November race when his car caught on fire. And Brad tested there at Phoenix back in January. And I'm just hoping that, obviously, they will perform much better than they did last year at Phoenix. Seventh was our our Daytona 500 champion, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Eighth was Harrison Burton. Ninth was Kevin Harvick. In the penultimate time, he will be wheeling a cup car at Phoenix Raceway. We're going to talk in a little bit how much Phoenix has meant to Kevin over the years. And 10th was his teammate, Eric Almarola. 11th, A.J. Allmendinger. 12th was Chris Buescher. 13th was Daniel Suarez. 14th was Corey LaJoy. And that's another interesting thing that, that I probably should have talked about a little bit on the last show. But when people were talking about you know who they wanted to drive Chase Elliott's nine car for the time being until he comes back, when I talked to Josh Manley, he said that, you know, He's a Brad Keselowski fan, just like myself. He's a Chris Buescher fan and a Ross Chastain fan. We all are. But Josh, over the past couple of years, he definitely has a bit of a soft spot for Corey LaJoy, and how could you not? And yeah, you know, Randy LaJoy's son, but he has truly worked his ass off to get to this level in NASCAR. You go back and you listen to the Dale Jr. download in 2021 when he had Corey and Randy on, and... Randy was incredibly, incredibly hard on Corey, incredibly tough on him when he was coming up through the ranks and would tell him, like, if you want to make it, you got to do it yourself. You got to build your car. You got to work on your car. You got to fix it. There's only so much I could do. And, you know, Josh and I, we were talking about how cool it would have been to see Corey LaJoy drive Chase Elliott's nine car for these next few weeks, especially at Atlanta Motor Speedway. When you look at how Corey, not once but twice last year, was nearly able to pull off the Cinderella story of the year. He, you know, he got the first top five finish of his career last year at Atlanta Motor Speedway in March. He led a bunch of laps towards the end of the race in July, was going to make a, what he thought could have been the winning pass on Chase Elliott the last lap of the race before he got fenced and wrecked and finished in the 20s. It definitely would have been cool to see Corey LaJoy in the nine car, specifically next weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway. His father, Randy, did some starts for Hendrick Motorsports back in 1998 when Ricky Craven was suffering from post-concussion syndrome. And Randy was able to get the first and only top five finish of his cup career in April of 1998 at Martinsville. But like Dale Earnhardt Jr. talked about on his podcast earlier this week, as great of a story as that would be, that would also be a huge setback for Spire. Spire They have a technical alliance with Hendrick Motorsports. They get their engines from them. They used to get their cars from them before the next gen came about. And, you know, Dale Jr.'s old crew chief, Steve Letart, his colleague at NBC, Steve is sort of a consultant for Spire. He even was Corey's crew chief at Miami two years ago when his regular crew chief, Ryan Sparks, 
came in contact with someone that had COVID-19. So like Dale Jr. was saying, you know, Spire, they've put so much money and so much effort into this particular season with Corey LaJoy that they would basically lose all the momentum that they would have. So nevertheless, though, you still hope that maybe one day Corey LaJoy could get an opportunity in top-notch equipment. 15th was Austin Dillon. 16th was Bubba Wallace. 17th, Martin Trex Jr. 18th, Austin Sendrick. 19th was Denny Hamlin. And 20th was William Byron. 21st, Zane Smith, a rare start in the 38 car this year. 22nd was Tyler Reddick. 23rd was Josh Berry in the 9 car. 24th was Christopher Bell. 25th, Noah Gregson. 26th, Ross Chastain. 27th, Eric Jones. 28th was Ty Gibbs. And 29th, the guy that used to drive that car, Kyle Busch. As spectacular as the first two weeks were, nearly winning the Daytona 500 and winning at California Speedway, these last two weeks have been really, really tough for Kyle, Randall, Randall, the Randall Burnett, and the eight team. They struggled at Las Vegas. Kyle hit the wall a few times and finished 14th. And so far this weekend at Phoenix, they've shown no speed at all. 30th was Michael McDowell at his home track. 31st was Todd Gilliland, who is in the 15 car this week. 32nd, Ryan Priest. 33rd, Justin Haley. 34th, Ty Dillon. 35th is Cody Ware. And 36th, BJ McLeod. Now, taking a look at the 10 lap averages from practice at Phoenix Raceway, the best 10 lap average was the number five of Kyle Larson with an average speed of 129.311 miles per hour. Second was Ryan Blaney. Third was his teammate Joey Logano. Fourth is Kevin Harvick. You know, Clint Boyer said that Kevin, Kevin's car looked very, very racy last night during practice at Phoenix Raceway. Fifth, William Byron. Sixth was Bubba Wallace. Seventh, Chase Briscoe, as I said, the defending winner of this race. Eleventh is Denny Hamlin. Ninth, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Tyler Reddick in tenth. Eleventh was Daniel Suarez. Twelfth was Chris Buescher. Thirteenth, Alex Bowman. Fourteenth, Brad Keselowski. Fifteenth was Harrison Burton. Sixteenth, Christopher Bell. Seventeenth, Eric Amarola. Eighteenth, Martin Trex Jr., 19th, Ty Gibbs, 20th, Eric Jones, 21st, Josh Berry, 22nd, A.J. Allmendinger, 23rd was Michael McDowell, 24th, Austin Sendrick, 25th, Corey LaJoy, 26th, Ross Chastain, 27th on 10-lap averages, Kyle Busch, 28th was Justin Haley, 29th, Noah Gregson, 30th, Austin Dillon, 31st was little brother Ty, 32nd, Ryan Priest. 33rd was Cody Ware, and 34th was Todd Gilliland. So, as we talked about, we are now less than an hour away from NASCAR Cup Series qualifying, beginning at Phoenix Raceway. So, real quick, I'm going to give you the qualifying order for later today at Phoenix Raceway and my expectations for said driver. So, Group A, the first car that will go on track is the 77 of Ty Dillon. Ty's best finish at Phoenix was 11th back in November of 2017. But right now, as we have seen, this partnership with Spire so far, as we talked about, you know, Corey LaJoy is doing an amazing job in this car with Spire with the 7 car. But the 77 with Ty Dillon has just been a complete mess so far. I mean, they have been 
off the pace pretty much everywhere throughout the practices. You know, Ty is usually a second or more off the pace of the leaders. So, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be another long day for Ty Dillon tomorrow. Going out second is the 38 of Zane Smith, our 2022 NASCAR Camping World Truck Series champion. Now, a lot of people are probably wondering why exactly is Zane Smith running this race? Why is he taking Todd Gillen's car for this race? Zane Smith said when they came up with the schedule for the cup races that he and Front Row Motorsports were going to do this year, Zane said that he wanted to do this race specifically to set himself up for the Truck Series Championship in November when they come back. He just wants the extra seat time. He wants extra laps so he could go and defend his championship in November and possibly go back-to-back. Third will be Cody Wirth. Fourth will be Noah Gregson, who won the Xfinity race last March at Phoenix Raceway for Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Kelly Earnhardt Miller. Fifth will be Harrison Burton, showing a little bit of speed in practice. His father, Jeff, has two wins at Phoenix Raceway, 2000 and 2001. Sixth will be Michael McDowell from Glendale, Arizona. Michael's best finish at his home track was 16th in March of 2020. Going out seventh will be the 43 of Eric Jones. His best finish here was fourth in his rookie season, November of 2017. But for as phenomenal as Eric Jones, Dave Ellens, and the 43 team looked last year, they are struggling so far this year. They need a good run. Going out eighth will be the 45 of Tyler Reddick, who finished third in this race last year. That's another team. You know, Tyler finally finished a race at Las Vegas, finishing 15th. They need to dig themselves out of the hole that they've dug themselves into so far this year. Going out ninth will be the seven of Corey LaJoy. Corey finished 18th at Phoenix back in November. And going out 10th is the 47 of Ricky Stenhouse Jr., his best finish in a cup car at Phoenix was fourth in March of 2017. The biggest thing with Ricky is... We know how good he is at Daytona and Talladega. We know how good he is at Bristol. But ever since he came to the Cup Series full-time in 2013, the main struggle has been short tracks. And yeah, some of it was when he was with Roush Fenway, and they were going through their dark years. But for the most part, short tracks, aside from Bristol, have not really been that good for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 11th is the 31 of Justin Haley. Justin finished 17th in this race last year. Going out 12th is the 6 of Brad Keselowski. Brad has a pair of second place finishes at Phoenix Raceway, second in November of 2018 to Kyle Busch, and then second in the 2020 NASCAR Cup Series Championship race to Chase Elliott. When obviously the night before, The NASCAR Xfinity Series Championship was won by the guy who will go out right after Brad, the two of Austin Sendrick. Brad's number two pit crew was pitting Austin that night. They won the race and the championship. Obviously, they celebrated a little too much on the stage that night and were absolutely horrendous and unacceptable all day on pit road, that championship race at Phoenix. As I said with Brad, Matt McCall and the sixth team, You know, Phoenix arguably was their worst track last year, so I just hope that they gained enough good notes from the test session in January and from practice last night that I hope that it could translate into something very, very good as for the six team goes. I mean, they finished fourth at Martinsville Speedway October of last year before they were disqualified, so 
I'm sort of having a little bit of hope that maybe they could get a strong run out of it. And rejoining the sixth team this weekend for Rash Fenway Keselowski Racing is his spotter, TJ Majors. TJ had to sit out last weekend at Las Vegas Motor Speedway with an illness. Brad's older brother, Brian Keselowski, did an outstanding job filling in for him. But it is great to have TJ Majors back on top of the spotter stand. As I said, going out 13th will be the two of Austin Sendrick. He did win that 2020 Xfinity Series Championship at Phoenix. His best finish in Brad Keselowski's old car was 11th in the fall race last year. And then going out 14th is the king of Phoenix Raceway, Kevin Harvick. And Kevin has nine NASCAR Cup Series wins at Phoenix Raceway. And the amazing thing is, 22 years ago today, March 11th, 2001, was when Kevin Harvick would score his first NASCAR Winston Cup Series win at Atlanta Motor Speedway by six six one-thousandths of a second over Jeff Gordon just three weeks after Dale Earnhardt's death with his old car and his old team. 22 years. And it's surreal to think that when they go back to Phoenix on November 5th and that checkered flag waves, that that will be the end for Kevin Harvick and his career. As I said for Kevin, nine wins at Phoenix Raceway. And like Kevin talked about, his most recent win here in March of 2018. Being from Bakersfield, California, Phoenix is the Daytona equivalent for the West Coast. I mean, Kevin has been coming to races at Phoenix since the early 90s. But those nine wins at Phoenix, he swept both races in 2006 when he was still with Richard Childress Racing. On the weekend in 2012, when it was reported that he was going to be leaving RCR at the end of 2013, Kevin, Gil Martin, and the 2019, they were able to get a win on Veterans Day and avoid Kevin going winless for just the for just the third time in his career. And then the final win for Kevin Harvick and Richard Childress Racing together would come at Phoenix one year later in November of 2013. Kind of surreal to think that 10 years later is when his career will be coming to an end. Then, moving over to Stuart Haas Racing in 2014, recruiting Rodney Childers over from Michael Waltrip Racing. In just his second race with the team, Kevin Harvick was able to hold off Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Brad Brad Keselowski in dominant fashion. His second race with the team, he wins for Stuart Haas Racing at Phoenix. Then going back there in November, a must-win situation after being wrecked by Matt Kenseth. At Martinsville, just two weeks prior to that, finishing second at Texas Motor Speedway, Kevin just stomped on everybody's throats that November at Phoenix, winning the race, clinching a spot into the championship four, and one week later winning, so far, his only NASCAR Sprint Cup Series championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. Kevin extended his record, scoring a third consecutive win at Phoenix in March of 2015, was on his way to four in a row in November of 2015 when Dale Earnhardt Jr., the amazing strategy that he and Greg Ives had, the pit stop, the caution comes out. All Dale Jr. had to do was just dump the clutch, cross the start-finish line. He's ahead of Kevin Harvick. The rain gets heavier and heavier and heavier. NASCAR calls the race, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. would end up scoring the 26th and final victory of his career. When they got back to Phoenix in March of 2016, that amazing photo finish with he and Carl Edwards body slamming each other to the checkered flag, Kevin, just inching him out for his eighth Phoenix win, and then his most recent win, as we talked about, in March of 2018. 
Kevin has a record 19 consecutive top 10 finishes at Phoenix Raceway. The streak began in November of 2013, as I said, his last victory with Richard Childress Racing. After, so Kevin finished 19th in the spring race of 2013 at Phoenix Raceway. The streak began November of 2013, winning at Phoenix Raceway, and has not been snapped since then. When Kevin... When Kevin took sole possession of a record consecutive top 10 finishes at one particular racetrack. So Kevin, excuse me. So Kevin scored his 19th consecutive top 10 finish at Phoenix Raceway in November of last year, breaking a tie with the guy whose car he took over, the late Dale Earnhardt Sr., Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Richard Petty had 18 consecutive top 10 finishes, both at North Wilkesboro Speedway. For Dale, his streak began in at North Wilkesboro in September of 1983 when he finished second that day, all the way to April of 1992 when he got a top 10 before struggling in the October race of 1992. Richard Petty, his streak of 18 consecutive top 10s at North Wilkesboro, it began with the fall race of 1968 that he ended up winning. And then he finished second to Kale Yarbrough there in the spring of 1977 on Kale's 38th birthday. As I said, Kale became the first driver to win on his birthday that day before Richard would end up getting crashed out of the fall race at North Wilkesboro in 1977. To finish off group a Denny Hamlin goes out 15th Denny. Obviously we know how incredible of a driver he is on these flat tracks He has wins at Phoenix Raceway. He won here in March of 2012. That was his first win without Mike Ford as his crew chief after the two of them went their separate ways. You know, Denny, it still baffles my mind that he he doesn't have a championship to his name. This is the kind of racetrack that really, really suits his driving style. And it seems like he struggles every time he goes there with a shot at the championship. I, I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. And especially when Denny, his other win at Phoenix came in November of 2019, which was a must-win situation after spinning out the week before Texas Motor Speedway. Starting 16th is his employee, the 23, of Bubba Wallace. Bubba has one top 10 finish to his career at Phoenix Raceway, and that was 10th in his rookie season, November of 2018, getting a top 10 for the United States Air Force on Veterans Day. 17th is his teammate Martin Trex Jr., Martin has one win at Phoenix Raceway in March of 2021. And the last driver that will go out in Group A is the 24 of William Byron. William has one Xfinity win at Phoenix, Veterans Day 2017, clinching a spot into the championship four. He would end up winning the championship one week later. His best finish in a cup car was sixth back in November of 2022. Now on to Group B. Going out 19th will be the 78 of B.J. McLeod. 20th is Phoenix, Arizona's J.J. Yaley. 21st is the defending winner of this race, Chase Briscoe. The first win of his career coming at Phoenix in March of 2022. And pretty incredible to think that the finish of that race, it was Chase Briscoe, Ross Chastain, Tyler Reddick, the top three finishers that day, that as the laps were unwinding, none of them had one NASCAR Cup Series win to their name. And Chase would get his first. Ross Chastain would get the first one of his career two weeks later at Coda. And then Tyler Reddick 
on July 3rd at Road America. It was definitely fun to see that race unfold. Going out 22nd will be his teammate, the 41 of Ryan Priest. Ryan's best finish at Phoenix was 18th in March of 2020. Going out 23rd is the three of Austin Dillon, his best finish at Phoenix, 8th on Veterans Day in 2018. Then going out 24th is the number nine of Josh Berry. Josh just got out of his Xfinity car. They're qualifying right now, but Josh looked very, very strong in his Xfinity car for later today, 4, four o'clock on Fox Sports 1. And his best finish in an Xfinity car at Phoenix Raceway was third last year behind his teammate Noah Gregson and his new teammate Brandon Jones. Then going out 22nd is the 22 of Joey Logano, an incredible track for Joey, three wins at Phoenix, November of 2016, clinching a spot into the championship four. March of 2020, which was just five days before the season would be suspended for two months because of COVID-19. And then this race last year, November of 2022, winning his second NASCAR Cup Series championship. Going out right after Joey is the 54 of Ty Gibbs. Ty, as we know, he would end up winning the NASCAR Xfinity Series championship at Phoenix Raceway the night before Joey won his championship. And Ty was scheduled to drive the 23 car for 23XI in that race, qualified 10th. And sadly, as we know, Ty Gibbs, he wins the Xfinity race, he wins the championship, and then just hours later, his father, Coy, passed away unexpectedly. Ty flew back home to North Carolina, and they had Daniel Hamrick drive the 23 car that day at Phoenix. So this is Ty Gibbs' first time back to Phoenix Raceway since losing his father there unexpectedly. Going out 27th is the 16 of A.J. Allmendinger. A.J. scored the first pole of his career at Phoenix in this race back in 2010. His best finish in a cup car at Phoenix was 6th in November of 2011. Starting 28th is the 10, or going out 28th is the 10 of Eric Almarola. Eric is incredible here at Phoenix. A pair of fourth place finishes, Veterans Day 2018 and March of 2019. Going out 29th is the 17 of Chris Buescher. You know, Chris talked about how this track had really been a struggle for him throughout his career. When you look at Chris and you look at his Xfinity Series championship season in 2015, the thing with, with Chris is as great as he is at Bristol Motor Speedway, especially when you think of the second cup win of his career coming at Bristol September of last year. But for the most part, short tracks have never really been that strong for Chris Buescher until he finished third at Richmond in the summer of 2022 last year. So for Chris going into Phoenix last year, the March race at Phoenix, his best finish, <clears throat> Chris's best finish in a cup car at Phoenix up until this race last year was a pair of 16th place finishes in both 2019 races. When you look at Chris's NASCAR Xfinity Series career, his best finish in the Xfinity Series at Phoenix, <clears throat> excuse me, was... Chris didn't even have a single top 10 in the Xfinity Series either at Phoenix. His best finish there was 13th in November of 2015, one week before he won his Xfinity Championship. So you think about it, like Brad Keselowski has two Xfinity wins at Phoenix, November of 2014 and March of 2018. He's come so close so many times in a cup car there, second in 2018, and also the 2020 championship race. So obviously, 
Chris is learning so much right now from Brad Keselowski, and it shows. I mean, they struggled in the November race. Chris, Scott Graves, and the 17 team did. They finished 21st. But you look at yesterday, he was 12th in practice. He was 12th on the 10-lap averages. I don't think that Chris is going to set the world on fire, but it won't shock me one bit if he gets another top 10 tomorrow. Rolling out 30th in qualifying is the 12 of Ryan Blaney. Ryan is so good at Phoenix. It, it blows my mind that he doesn't have a cup win there yet. He has two poles, November of 2017 and also March of 2019. And he did finish second to his teammate Joey Logano in the 2022 championship race. I'm sorry, but I think there was a little bit of team orders at the end of that race because Ryan definitely had the faster car than Joey did at the end, but I'm sure Roger Penske probably instructed him, do not pass Joey since Ross Chastain was back in third. So with Ryan, tons of top fives there, tons of laps led. It's only going to be a matter of time until he gets a cup win at Phoenix. It could be tomorrow. He was on the pole. He was actually on the pole for this race last year too. Dominated the race, lost the track position, and was only able to get back up to fourth. Rolling out 31st in qualifying is the number eight of Kyle Busch. Kyle has three cup wins at Phoenix. November of 2005, his rookie season with Hendrick Motorsports. And with Kurt... Earlier that year, winning the first ever spring race at Phoenix, the Bush brothers, they became the first pair of brothers to win at the same racetrack in the same season since the Allisons, all the way back in 1978 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And with Kyle winning at Auto Club Speedway in Fontana just a few weeks ago, Kyle and Kurt, they were able to pass Bobby and Donnie Allison as the winningest pair of brothers in NASCAR Cup Series history. Kyle and Kurt, the two of them have 95 wins. Kurt, 61. <clears throat> Kyle has 61 wins. Kurt has 34. And then Bobby, 84 wins while Donnie had 10. Kyle's other two cup wins at Phoenix, they came on Veterans Day in 2018 and March of 2019 when he and Adam Stevens just had that place completely figured out. They were so dominant in those races. Rolling out 32nd is the 99 of Daniel Suarez, his first time here in a cup car. He finished 7th back in March of 2017. Also, his first truck series win came at Phoenix in 2016 after William Byron's engine blew up. 33rd will be his teammate, the number 1 of Ross Chastain, who finished 2nd in this race last year. 34th will be the 20 of Christopher Bell who has a pair of ninth-place finishes in both 2021 races, along with an Xfinity win here in November of 2018. Rolling out 35th will be the number five of Kyle Larson. Kyle won this race in November of 2021 in dominant fashion en route to his first NASCAR Cup Series championship. And the final car to go out in qualifying will be his teammate, the 48 of Alex Bowman, being from Tucson, Arizona. The thing with Alex is, even though it's his home track, it is not pretty. Now, everybody always talks about, you know, with Alex Bowman, how, you know, his first two years in the Cup Series, 2014, he drove for Burger King Racing and was released. 2015, he goes over to Tommy Baldwin Racing, misses the Daytona 500, tears up a bunch of race cars, and here's Alex in January of 2016, scrolling through Twitter while he's in line at Taco Bell, finding out that Tommy Baldwin has fired him. Around the same time, it was announced that Dale, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Kelly Earnhardt Miller, they were going to have Alex compete in nine NASCAR Xfinity races for them in 2016. Along with that, he was going to become the sim driver for Hendrick Motorsports. Unfortunately, as we all know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. wrecks at Michigan in June of 2012. 
And as the weeks progressed, the symptoms started to linger more and more and more. And then July 14th, late in the afternoon, Hendrick Motorsports announces Dale Earnhardt Jr. will not race at New Hampshire because of concussion-like symptoms. Alex Bowman will drive the 88 on Sunday. His first race in the car, for as much as he had struggled throughout the week, he had driven up into the top 10 there towards the end of the race, blew a tire going off into turn one, and wrecked and finished. I don't even remember where he finished, but obviously it was well down the order. Unfortunately, as the weeks progressed, Dale Earnhardt Jr. could not receive medical clearance from Mickey Collins, UPMC in Pittsburgh. And then next thing you know, he has to miss the entire second half of the season. Jeff Gordon and Alex Bowman were splitting duties with the number 88 Nationwide Chevrolet. Obviously, one of the races that Alex wanted was November of 2016, his home track, Phoenix Raceway. So with the same car that Dale Earnhardt Jr. had scored the final win of his career with at Phoenix in November of 2015 and had finished fifth with in March of 2016, came really, really close to winning that race there at the end, but unfortunately just got a bad restart alongside of Kevin Harvick on that green-white checkered. Alex goes out there on Friday night and wins the pole for the race in Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s 88 car, proceeds to lead well over 100 laps on Sunday, and then ultimately... That dive bomb move into turn one on the restart when he wrecks Matt Kenseth, costs Matt his last chance ever, making it to the championship four, and Alex would end up finishing sixth that day. I said it right then and there. You know, Alex ran good in that race because it was Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s car, because of Greg Ives, because of the setup that they had for Phoenix. Ever since Alex took over that car and that team full-time in 2018, his best finish at Phoenix is 13th. So even though Alex, even though he's looking fast so far this year, you know, top five at Daytona, eighth at California, third at Vegas, I would avoid him like the plague this weekend. Even though it's his home track, he definitely struggles there a lot. Now, we are 10 minutes away from qualifying beginning. Before I take a quick break here and watch qualifying unfold, some big news came down last night at Phoenix Raceway. And this big news was that a the LeVars, I guess you could say, the hood flaps on all four Hendrick Motorsports cars were confiscated by NASCAR. And I know what you're probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? Well, obviously, the way that these flaps are designed, you're talking about aerodynamic advantages, you're talking about speed advantages, and you know, not to take anything away from Hendrick Motorsports, but now it makes you wonder why they've been so friggin' dominant and fast so far this year. It makes you wonder why Alex Bowman has been so fast these first three races. His crew chief, Blake Harris, Blake was notorious for getting thrown out every weekend, just about every weekend when he was Martin Trex Jr.'s car chief. They would go through inspection, the car would fail several times, He'd be the one getting ejected from the track. So it makes you wonder what, why they've been so dominant so far this year. So Hendrick, so it was a piece that would form the, the hood vent, as Bob Pockers was saying. So as Bob Pockers reported, he said that they took them from the four Hendrick cars for further evaluation. They were allowed to replace them. Any penalties would be announced next week. And then he backtracked and said NASCAR saw something in the Hendrick Lovar's that could be a possible issue before practice, but they didn't take them from Hendrick until after practice. Here we go. 
It says the Hendrick teams will be allowed to qualify. Teams go through Tech tomorrow prior to qualifying. Here's the thing. When they came out with this next-gen car, NASCAR made it black and white, plain as day, cut and dry. If you mess with any freaking part of this race car, there will be severe penalties handed down. Now, Brad Keselowski, Atlanta Motor Speedway, March of last year, you know, just minutes before the race begins, all of a sudden you get word he has to start at the back of the field. Unapproved adjustments, but NASCAR wouldn't explain what it was. Here, Matt McCall and the six team, they had modified the rear bumper panel to the car. Brad had a hell of a race, came from the back, ran up and into the top five, finished 12th that day. Thursday morning rolls around, I'm getting ready for work, and I get news that Brad has been docked 100 points, and Matt McCall has been suspended for the next four races. Coda, Richmond, Martinsville, the Bristol Dirt Race. As we know, the axe that they've had to grind with Brad Keselowski for so many years, the target that they've always had on him, you know, Brad now being an owner driver, he appealed the decision. Smart move on his part to keep Matt McCall at home those weekends. Josh Sell, the engineer, he was the interim crew chief. I thought he did a remarkable job. But ultimately, they had the appeal the Thursday before the Martinsville race. The appeal was upheld. Brad was docked 100 points. Matt McCall was suspended. So just like that, Brad Keselowski went from 16th in points to 35th, pretty much ruined any chance he had at making the playoffs on points. But this is Hendrick Motorsports. You know, this is, their, this is their golden goose. This is the team where it seems like just about everything they let slip under the rug. You look back to March of 2005, Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Friday night qualifying. Kevin Harvick goes out there, qualifies fourth. And they find something wrong with the fuel cell. They disqualify Kevin's lap time. He has to start 42nd. And then in the race, he drives all the way back up to finish 5th. This is when he was with RCR. In the race itself, Jimmy Johnson and Kyle Busch. Jimmy wins the race. Kyle finishes 2nd. First top 5 and top 10 of his career. They take the cars to post-race inspection. Hey, what do you know? There's something wrong with the fuel cells. NASCAR? They announce that... Todd Barrier, Kevin's crew chief, Chad Knauss, Alan Gustafson, they announced that they've all been suspended. They've all been suspended. Hendrick Motorsports, they appeal. Richard Childress Racing, they appeal. And what do you know? Hendrick, um, it gets overturned. Chad Knauss doesn't miss any time. Alan Gustafson doesn't miss any time. Todd Barrier, meanwhile... Todd was suspended from Atlanta and Bristol. You know, Kevin Harvick won Bristol with with Scott Miller as his interim crew chief. You know, they appeal. It's upheld. Hendrick Motorsports, they appeal. Everything gets dropped. Just like 2012, Speed Weeks of Daytona. You know, the rear window in Jimmy Johnson's car. They dock Jimmy 100 points. They go to appeal it. It gets upheld. They go to a second appeal. Then, voila, just like that, Jimmy gets his 100 points back and Chad isn't suspended. My point is, this is, Hendrick has been known to bend, every team's been known to bend rules. But it seems like they always, it seems like everything always gets swept under the rug with Hendrick. Whereas, you know, with Brad and Roush being a Ford team, Hendrick is a Chevrolet team, it seems like they have had 
a target on their back for such a long time with NASCAR. It's it's unbelievable. I we need consistency. We need consistency instead of playing favorites, and we see it all the time. And that's why you know they could say like, oh, they're taking them to R and D. Any penalties could be announced next week. You know NASCAR isn't going to do shit with Hendrick Motorsports. You know, they'll take the pieces, they'll go back to the R&D center just like they took Brad's car back there. They'll be like, oh, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, no no points penalties, no suspension for Cliff Daniels, Alan Gustafson, Rudy Fugel, Blake Harris. No, because it's Henrik Motorsports. They get away with everything. But if this was Rash Fenway Kozlowski Racing, if this was Penske, if this was Stuart Haas specifically, if this was any other team, RCR, any other team, you know that NASCAR would throw the freaking book at them. So even though this is a clear aerodynamic advantage, a clear speed advantage, there's nothing that's going to be done about it. Absolutely nothing. And Jason Boone, you know, Jason, who is, he was a Jeff Gordon fan growing up. He's now a Chase Briscoe fan. You know, Bob Pockris tweeted, Chad, Chad Kanas politely declined comment on NASCAR taking the Hendrick LaVar's Obviously, a fluid situation, and my guess, more discussions once they get to R&D and NASCAR dissects and likely scans them to see if any modifications. So you, you know that, that nothing's going to come of this. And then Bob wrote, what I gather talking to teams, pretty much not all of these are being manufactured 100% totally to spec and or fitting issues, and teams have been told not to touch them, and new ones will be coming that get them right. Some fan tweets to Bob Pockers. They said, this is ridiculous. Hendrick Motorsports should be allowed to modify this part to fit, even if it gives them an edge over the other teams. It just means Hendrick was smarter than the other teams to push the limits. Jason Boone, he tweets, bullshit. They came down heavy on Keselowski last year. NASCAR needs to start being consistent. Thank you, Boone. They need to start being consistent. You know, if, if you're going to... Doc Brad Keselowski, who you've had a vendetta against for well over a decade now, if you're going to dock him 100 points and make Matt McCall sit at home for four weeks, you need to dock all those Hendrick Motorsports cars 100 points. Cliff Daniels, Alan Gustafson, Rudy Fugel, Blake Harris, they need to be sitting their asses on the couch for four weeks because there's no consistency in NASCAR. There's none. Absolutely none. And it, it just absolutely baffles me, the blatant favoritism that we get all the time in the sport. So... Right before we have qualifying begin here in just a little bit, as far as the guys that I would look to be strong this weekend at Phoenix, when I look at Group A, I would definitely have to say the best out of the group is Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, as we talked about, you know, Kevin's prowess for Phoenix with nine wins, the 19 consecutive top 10 finishes. Obviously, this place means so much to Kevin, and it's going to mean even more in November when his last cup race is run here. Denny Hamlin, as I talked about, you know, with his prowess on flat tracks, his teammate, the 19 of Martin Trex Jr., I think that those guys are going to be incredibly strong. With William Byron, I don't know, obviously, with these parts being confiscated. And with Brad Keselowski and Bubba Wallace, you know, yeah, you could run fast in practice, you could run fast in the test and everything, but I need to see it carry over. I need to see it in the race because we know how hard it is to pass at Phoenix. And then looking at Group B, Chase Briscoe, he won this race last year. He was top five in the championship race. But I specifically look at Penske and Hendrick Motorsports. Joey Logano and Ryan Blaney 
I look for them to be incredibly fast, just like they were in the championship race. I look at, as far as Hendrick Motorsports goes, it definitely has to be Kyle Larson. So that is what we have on tap for tomorrow's United Rentals 500 at Phoenix Raceway. 3.30 Eastern Time on Fox. In the booth will be Mike Joy, Clint Boyer, who has a Bush Series win at Phoenix in April of 2007, and Danica Patrick. 312 laps. Stage 1 will be lap 60. Stage 2 will be lap 185. I'm going to take a quick break. Qualifying is about to begin, and I will rejoin you guys once it is over with the starting lineup and my predictions who I expect to win. And qualifying has concluded for tomorrow's United Rentals 500 at Phoenix Raceway. Taking a look at the starting lineup, the 10 drivers that were able to make it to the final round of qualifying. Out of Group A, we had William Byron with the fastest time of 27.553 seconds. Second out of Group A was the 43 of Eric Jones. Third was the 6 of Brad Keselowski. What an incredible turnaround by Roush Fenway, Keselowski Racing, Matt McCall, and that 6 team compared to last year at Phoenix Raceway. Fourth out of Group A was Denny Hamlin, and fifth was Glendale, Arizona's Michael McDowell. Then we moved on to Group B in qualifying, and what a freaking lap time that Kyle Larson put down. 27.324 seconds around Phoenix Raceway. Second out of Group B in qualifying was the number eight of Kyle Busch, 27.623. Just one one-thousandth of a second off of being three-tenths of a second faster than Kyle Busch at Phoenix Raceway, a place that he's obviously been very, very good at over the years. Third was the 20 of Christopher Bell. Fourth was the 12 of Ryan Blaney. And the 10th and final driver that was able to make it to the final round of qualifying was the number one of Ross Chastain. Also, what an incredible turnaround after he, Phil Surgeon, and the one team sort of struggled Friday night in practice. They were 26th on the sheet. So we moved ahead to qualifying for the NASCAR Cup Series, the final round. And to no surprise whatsoever, folks, on the poll tomorrow at Phoenix Raceway, the number five Hendrickars.com Chevrolet of Kyle Larson. This will be the 15th poll of Kyle's career and his second at Phoenix Raceway, as we talked about. November of 2021, he won the poll and then would go on to win the race and his first NASCAR Cup Series championship in dominant fashion. And despite that being the Gen 6 and this being the next gen, like myself and Josh Manley were talking about earlier today, Larson is absolutely going to whip the field tomorrow. The only way that Kyle Larson is going to lose this race tomorrow is if something breaks on that five car or he makes a mistake himself, whether it be on pit road or out on the racetrack. That car just looks stupid fast, basically. So Kyle Larson on the pole for tomorrow at Phoenix Raceway in the number five Chevrolet, joining him on the front row, two-time Phoenix winner Denny Hamlin in the number 11 Toyota. Moving ahead to row three, starting third is the 24 of William Byron coming off of the win last Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And starting in fourth tomorrow in the NASCAR Cup Series race at Phoenix Raceway is the number six Castrol Edge Ford of Brad Keselowski. Can you believe it? I, I'm still in shock, but this just shows how far Roush Fenway Keselowski racing has come ever since I would say about September of last year. As we all know, with the transition that Brad Keselowski made at the end of 2021 
12 years with Team Penske, going over to Rash Fenway, becoming a partial owner, taking over the six car after Ryan Newman was basically pushed out of there. But the struggles that Brad Keselowski went through last year, aside from the Daytona 500, aside from that race at Bristol that he dominated before the flat tire, it was very hard to watch, especially the 100-point penalty that came at Atlanta Motor Speedway in March, Matt McCall being suspended for four races, as we talked about just a little while ago. And to see Brad Keselowski miss the playoffs for the first time since 2013, and then as soon as the playoffs started, got a top-10 finish in the Southern 500 in seventh, dominated the race at Bristol Motor Speedway, only to have the flat tire. And then his teammate, Chris Buescher, went on to win. Won the pole at Texas, ran in the top five all night long, finished eighth, had a shot to win Talladega before he sped on pit road, had a shot for a top five at the Roval, got roughed up a little bit at the end. Top five finish finally at Homestead, Miami in fifth. Would have had a fourth place finish at Martinsville if the car didn't fail post-race inspection. But of course, like we talked about, how bad the sixth team was at Phoenix last year, 23rd in March and 35th in November when the car caught on fire. And then you look ahead to this year, the Daytona 500, they led more laps than anyone, 42 laps, gets wrecked on the last lap, 22nd, overcoming a spin at California Speedway to finish 7th, and had a top 5 car at Las Vegas before Matt Matt McCall sort of dialed them out and they finished 17th. So you're definitely starting to see the progress out of Rash Fenway-Keslowski racing, but specifically Brad Keselowski himself. I'm, I'm sure that had to be painful last year, going through the struggles, and also going through the struggles and seeing Chris Buescher outrun him considerably. So kudos to Brad Keselowski, Matt McCall, and TJ Majors. They have an absolutely fast race car for tomorrow at Phoenix. As I said, two second-place finishes for Brad Keselowski in the Cup Series at Phoenix, November of 2018 in the 2020 championship race. But two Xfinity wins there in November of 2014 and March of 2018. Starting fifth will be the 20 of Christopher Bell. I feel like this has always been a good track for Christopher. I mean, it's only going to be a matter of time until he starts clicking off some top fives and wins there in the Cup Series. And then starting in sixth, his fellow championship four rival from last year, the number one of Ross Chastain. And Ross was incredible at Phoenix last year. He was second in this race to Chase Briscoe. Then when they got back there in November, he was third in the race and second in the championship to Joey Logano. Starting in seventh, one of the hometown kids, not Alex Bowman. I tried telling you he's not good at his home track. But starting in seventh, Glendale, Arizona's Michael McDowell. And, you know, Michael, he'll be the first to tell you that Phoenix, even though it's his home track, it's never really been that good for him either. But we're talking about the 34 car. We're talking about front row motorsports. Yeah, they sort of have an alliance with Roush Fenway Keselowski, but this is a team that has truly come a long way from where they were when they came to the Cup Series in 2005. And Michael McDowell is definitely getting the most out of that car. I don't know what to expect from him tomorrow, but nevertheless, an incredible qualifying effort when you think of the rest of the guys. Starting alongside of him is the 12 of Ryan Blaney. As I said, Ryan has been incredible at Phoenix. He has three poles. He was second in the championship race last year to Joey Logano. I still say that I think there were some team orders there at the end from Roger Penske because Ryan definitely had the faster car at the end of that race. But I definitely look for Ryan to be strong tomorrow. Starting ninth is the number eight of Kyle Busch. 
And what an incredible turnaround by himself, Randall Burnett, and the eight-team. Just like Ross Chastain, they struggled mightily in practice on Friday night. Kyle was 29th on the practice on the practice sheet. I still don't know how they were able to turn it around. But then again, it's Kyle Busch. And rounding out the top 10, I said just a little while ago, a guy that desperately needed a good run with how good they were last year and how much they've struggled so far this year, the 43 of Eric Jones. Starting 11th is the 99 of Daniel Suarez. Starting 12th is the 45 of Tyler Reddick. And listening to Tyler Reddick on the Dale Jr. download this past week, talking about the transition from Richard Childress Racing to 23XI, and really how Tyler has talked about really putting in the time and the effort to better himself, both personally and professionally. Definitely a great, great podcast to listen to. Starting 19th, Joe Gibbs Racing Teammates. Starting in 13th and 14th, the 19th of Martin Trex Jr. will be starting in 13th. Won this race two years ago in 2021. And starting alongside of him in 14th is his rookie teammate, Ty Gibbs. Starting in 15th, the king of Phoenix Raceway, the number four of Kevin Harvick. Nine wins at Phoenix Raceway. And just based on the lap times, the 10 lap averages, you know he will be a factor tomorrow. Starting alongside of him in 16th is another guy that I was very, very surprised to see him qualify so poorly. The 22 of Joey Logano, who won at Phoenix in November to win the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series Championship. But I feel like, just like I talked about with Kevin, just like I I talked about with Ryan Blaney, I feel like these guys, they showed the speed during the 10-lap runs, and I feel like Joey will definitely find a way to get to the front at some point or another, whether it's the driving himself or some sort of strategy by Paul Wolf. Starting in 17th, as I've said throughout the week, if you give this kid a chance to prove himself in this equipment, he will not disappoint you. Starting 17th tomorrow in the number nine Kelly Blue Book Chevrolet is Josh Berry. What did I tell you? Almost like Robert De Niro and Goodfellas. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? This is a totally different situation. You know, Josh was just sort of thrust into everything that happened last week with Chase Elliott, breaking his leg on Friday. You're getting fitted into the car Saturday morning. Your first laps ever in a next-gen car. You qualified 32nd, finished 29th. And basically having to, I wouldn't say tiptoe, but obviously having to learn the next-gen car. And now that Josh knows that he's going to be in this car for five out of the next six races at most, you know, talking about tomorrow, Atlanta, Richmond, the Bristol Dirt Race, Martinsville, having more time to work with this team, to work with Alan Gustafson, to have time at the Chevrolet Simulator, this is what happens when you give somebody like Josh Berry the chance to learn. And I am absolutely excited to see him get this opportunity for the next month or so. So, with Josh qualifying in 17th, he was not the slowest Hendrick Motorsports car in qualifying. The slowest Hendrick Motorsports car in qualifying, qualifying alongside of him in 18th, was none other than Alex Bowman. And going into tomorrow at Phoenix, there are two drivers that have had three top 10s in three races so far this year. One of them is the 99 of Daniel Suarez. 7th in the Daytona 500, 4th of California, another top 10 at Las Vegas this past Sunday, but the other one has been Alex Bowman. 
I feel like Daniel definitely has a good chance to continue his top 10 streak, but I feel like for Alex, I feel like his top 10 streak definitely comes to an end tomorrow at Phoenix. You look at the parts that were confiscated off of the car, the fact that he he's even said it himself that he's not really good at his home track. So, yeah, I definitely think the clock strikes midnight tomorrow as far as Alex Bowman and this top 10 run that he's been on. Starting in 19th is the 23 of Bubba Wallace. The thing with Bubba is it seems like, you know, a flat track like a Martinsville, like a New Hampshire, it seems like these are tracks that he has adapted to so well since these were tracks that he raced on a lot when he was coming up through the ranks. And with Phoenix, it's just sort of puzzling. It seems like he and Booty Barker, they're just trying to find a good setup for this car at Phoenix. Bubba scraped the wall a little bit on his qualifying lap, nothing to worry about. But he said they're, they're still working really, really hard to find a good balance and a good setup for tomorrow at Phoenix. Starting in 20th is the number two of Austin Sendrick. And Austin, I thought, did a remarkable job last year, his first year in the two car, winning the Daytona 500. I mean, to, to a degree, though, because a lot of those top five finishes that Austin Sendrick had last year, you know, Third at Atlanta, which is basically a mini super speedway anymore. Second at the Indy Road Course when everybody piled into each other at the end. Third in the August race at Daytona. And really so far this year, honestly, Austin Cindric has not impressed me one bit. You know, Daytona's Daytona. He got caught up in T-Rex there at the end of the race. They were awful at California. He hit the wall and finished 28th. Sort of lucked into a top 10 at Las Vegas with that caution flag there at the end, finishing in sixth. And really, so far this weekend, I haven't really seen anything out of Austin that makes me think that he's going to do good tomorrow. Starting in 21st is the 17 of Chris Busher. As I said, this is definitely not a good track for Chris. I feel like he's got, come a long way from where he has, but I don't feel like... I feel like that lack of track position is going to make it a bit of an uphill battle for Chris tomorrow. Is he top 10 worthy? Sure, but they're definitely going to have to work some strategy in to try and get themselves up towards the front. Starting 22nd is the 16 of A.J. Allmendinger. Starting 23rd, the 47 of our Daytona 500 champion, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Starting in 24th, the defending winner of this race, the number 14 of Chase Briscoe. I do not know what is going on with Stuart Haas Racing so far this year, specifically with that 14 team. And I get that this year is going to be a transition year with Kevin Harvick retiring at the end of the year. And of course, a lot of that focus and attention rightfully is on Kevin to make sure that he has an incredible final season. So he could possibly, when we get back to Phoenix for the championship race and the final race of his career, so he could have a shot at that championship, just like Jeff Gordon did in 2015. And of course, the bigger elephant in the room, of course, is trying to figure out who will take over that number four car come 2024, along with the possibility that Anheuser-Busch, who has been with Kevin Harvick since 2011, there is a strong possibility that Anheuser-Busch might be following Kevin Harvick out the door at the end of 2023. There's already been some talks about, you know, Ross Chastain right now might be the favorite to land sponsorship with Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, picture Anheuser-Busch coming out with a watermelon-flavored beer. I'll tell you, if, if Ross Chastain has Budweiser on his car come 2024, it's easy to figure out who's going to be my next driver once Brad Keselowski's done, especially when you consider that track house as sort of the last remnants of Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. But the more 
even more of a natural fit or a perfect fit, I guess you could say, as far as this Anheuser-Busch sponsorship goes, Kyle Busch. Look at his number right now. He's in the number eight car. And of course, you look at his last name and you look at those awesome commercials they come out with all the time. Bush. I mean, really, that just seems too good to be true. Kyle Busch in the number eight, possibly with Budweiser. You know, he and Dale Earnhardt Jr., they've come a long way from sort of the bad blood those two had around 2007 and 2008. You know, Dale Jr. even said on the Rowdy documentary himself he was trying to court Kyle Busch to come over to DEI in 2003, but obviously Rick Hendrick had a hell of a lot more to offer. So definitely going to be interesting to follow who takes over that four car in 2024 and who lands the coveted Anheuser-Busch sponsorship. They have been involved in NASCAR since 1979, whether it's been with Busch or with Budweiser, definitely one of the most coveted sponsorships there is. So like with Chase Briscoe, you know, getting wrecked in the Daytona 500 is one thing, but they had engine issues at California. They struggled so bad at Las Vegas. And for Ryan Priest, you know, Ryan got off to such a great start, leading the most laps at the Clash before having an electrical issue, having a great car at Daytona before getting caught up in the big one, then getting caught up in a big one on a race start at California and really struggling at Las Vegas. And of course, Eric Almarola, I mean, what else do I need to say? <sighs> you know, you look at it, I mean, Eric is starting, Ryan Priest is starting 25th, Eric Almarola is starting 31st at one of his best racetracks, so yeah. There is definitely something wrong with Stuart Haas Racing right now, and it wouldn't surprise me after Kevin Harvick retires at the end of this year if there are some shakeups involved with the teams. You know, Rodney Childers, I know Rodney that they'll want to keep him on the four car, but after Kevin retires, let's face it, Chase Briscoe will be the face of Stuart Haas Racing, in my opinion. And, you know, Johnny Klossmeyer, it was great to see them get that first win at Phoenix and come so close to making it to the championship four. But honestly, right now, with the way things are going so far this year, if I'm Tony Stewart and Gene Haas, I am highly considering pairing Chase Briscoe with Rodney Childers in 2024. I am. As I said, Ryan Priest will start 25th, Justin Haley 26th. It sounds like some of those hood flaps were confiscated off of his car. But like we talked about, it's colleague racing. It's not Hendrick Motorsports. So wouldn't shock me one bit if they dropped the hammer on colleague sometime on Tuesday or Wednesday. Starting 27th is the 21 of Harrison Burton. Starting 28th, the 7 of Corey LaJoy. And how about this? Starting 29th, the number 15 Rick Ware Ford with Todd Gilliland. And look at some of the people that Todd Gilliland outqualified. The three of Austin Dillon is starting 30th. The 10 of Eric Amarola is starting 31st. The 42 of Noah Gregson in 32nd. 33rd, BJ McLeod. But 34th in the 38 car that Todd Gillen has been driving lately. Starting in 34th is the 38 of Zane Smith. And I love Zane Smith. Don't get me wrong. I want to see him get this experience. I want to see him take over Kevin Harvick's four car in 2024. But I really feel like Front Row Motorsports that they definitely did Todd Gillen dirty by taking him out of the 38 car for six races this year just to give Zane Smith seat time. I feel like that's a bad, bad move. And I feel like Todd has definitely handled this like a pro so far this weekend. As I said, starting in 30th is the three of Austin Dillon. And like Dale Earnhardt Jr., Mike Davis, myself, and Josh Manley, like we talked about. So at Las Vegas, Austin qualified 27th. 
while Kyle Busch qualified fifth. Today at Phoenix, he qualified 30th while Kyle Busch qualified ninth. And Tyler Reddick outran him so many times in that A car last year. So even though Austin was the one that convinced his grandfather to sign Kyle Busch to take over the A car, how long is it going to be before Austin Dillon starts getting jealous about having another teammate outrun him by well over 10 spots just about every weekend? Seriously. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You know, Tyler Reddick won three races last year. Yeah, Road America and Indy, Texas. Austin Dillon has four wins in nine years. And Richard Childress Racing, like I've talked about, you know, their equipment isn't like Hendrick Motorsports, but it's still good equipment. Look at what Kyle Busch is doing already. I'll tell you. And then, as I said, starting in 31st, Eric Amarola in the 10 car at one of his best racetracks. Unbelievable. Starting in 32nd, the 42 of Noah Gregson, 33rd, the 78 of BJ McLeod, 34th, the 38 of Zane Smith, 35th, the 77 of Ty Dillon, and starting dead last in 36th, the 51 of Cody Ware. So real quick, I just want to take a look at the 10-lap averages. As I talked about earlier, Kyle Larson, best 10-lap average with an average speed of 129.311 miles per hour. Rounding out the rest of the top 10 on 10-lap averages, we had Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano, Kevin Harvick, William Byron, Bubba Wallace, Chase Briscoe, Denny Hamlin, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., and Tyler Reddick. Looking at 11th through 20th on the 10-lap averages, Daniel Suarez, Chris Buescher, Alex Bowman, Brad Keselowski, Harrison Burton, Christopher Bell, Eric Amarola, Martin Trex Jr., Ty Gibbs, and Eric Jones. 21st through 30th on the 10-lap averages, Josh Berry, A.J. Allmendinger, Michael McDowell, Austin Sindrick, Corey LaJoy, Ross Chastain, Kyle Busch, Justin Haley, Noah Gregson, and Austin Dillon. And to round out 31st through 34th, 31st on the 10-lap averages, his younger brother Ty, Ryan Priest, Cody Ware, and Todd Gillen. So when I look ahead to tomorrow, and I look at this starting lineup, as I said, it is so clear that Kyle Larson has the best car for tomorrow. When I look at the guys that I expect to challenge him, I look right on the front row, Denny Hamlin. As we said, Denny has a prowess for flat tracks. He has two wins at Phoenix, 2012 and 2019. I feel like Denny, if he gets the car right, he and Chris Gabehart, if he has that track position, if he's up front, and I feel like this car taken. 30% downforce out of it, cutting the rear spoiler in half. I feel like this could definitely suit Denny's driving style, just like it has for Kyle Larson. And then you look at William Byron starting in third. I mean, William is fifth on the 10-lap averages. You know, it, it seems like this is always the point of the year when he and Rudy Fugel, they always get off to such a hot start. It's just a matter of maintaining it as spring turns to summer and so on. When I look at the six of Brad Keselowski, it's almost like the same thing as last weekend. You know, they qualified seventh at Las Vegas, and you're excited about it, but you don't want to get too excited about it. Because it's one thing to qualify well, and it's one thing to run good the first two-thirds of the race. But the biggest thing with Brad Keselowski, Matt McCall, and the sixth team, and, and it makes me think back to early on in 2012, 
when it was obvious that Dale Earnhardt Jr., that that return to victory lane was so close. I'll never forget, they were at Las Vegas Motor Speedway early in the year. He qualified fourth and got moved up to the front row after Kyle Busch had to go to the back of the field. Looks so fast all weekend in practice. They go down and turn one on Sunday. Right off the bat, he takes the lead from his teammate, Casey Kane. And 10 laps into the race, he is just checking out on the field. And Larry McReynolds said he's like the biggest thing with Dale Earnhardt Jr., Steve Letarte, and that 88 team. He said, can they put the beginning, the middle, and the end of the race together? Now, as the day went on, he led 70 laps. They come in for a pit stop and a caution. Steve has them take four tires. Everybody else takes gas or two tires. They lose that track position, and he was only able to get back up to 10th. My point is, with Matt McCall... Brad Keselowski, TJ Majors, who was on that 88 team as well, but this time the sixth team, can they put the beginning, the middle, and the end of the race together? That's my biggest concern with Brad Keselowski right now. I look at the one of Ross Chastain, but like I talked about, those Fords, Ryan Blaney, Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano. You know, I know that Kevin and Joey, I know that they're going to have to work a little bit to get their track position, but I feel like if this race goes on a long green flag run like I expected to, like A.J. Allmendinger talked about earlier today during qualifying, I feel like if that happens, that they could definitely, definitely contend. And as far as another Toyota goes, definitely the 19 of Martin Trex Jr. You know, it seems like Phoenix definitely has been a really, really good track for him. So I specifically look at those guys. And, you know, Chase Briscoe, the defending winner of this race, starting in 24th, you know, it sounds like with Chase, he just overdrove his lap. Obviously, really didn't get that great of a draw when you think of it. So, you know, Chase was saying how he wishes that he could do this lap all over again. So with Phoenix, I look for the outside lane to be the preferred lane on the start and the restarts. You look at that dog leg and how everybody's going to fan out on the start and the restart four and five wide, probably even try and go in six wide all the way down there. So you look for that. You look for really that emphasis early on to get that track position. And you look at the multi-grooves, and I feel like, you know, I feel like that middle to upper groove, you know, mainly the middle groove, that I feel like that's the line that a lot of people are going to try and run. Yeah, you're going to have guys, you know, hooking that left front down on the apron, you know, coming off of what used to be turn four, now that long, long back straightaway. I feel like that's the thing is it's all going to be about room on the racetrack and track position. I don't know. I feel like you need the track position. I just don't know what kind of tire the Goodyear is going to bring if it's going to be able to hold up, you know, if you take two tires, for instance. And the other thing, of course, I mean, with it being 81 degrees and with it being sunny, you obviously have to take care of the tires and the brakes, you know, we've seen it so many times throughout the years at Phoenix. You know, you're turning and turning and turning, and you get that right front tire, that right front tire, putting all that pressure on it and all the, and how hot it is and everything. You see the bead blow out. So that that's the biggest thing I'm going to look for is right front tires and brakes. But ultimately, when it's all said and done, you know, I like I've talked about, 
Kyle Larson, if he, Cliff Daniels, and that five team, if they have everything go their way, there is no way they're losing this race tomorrow. That car just looks really, really fast. And as we've talked about over the past several weeks, Chevrolet, 3-0 and on the season for the first time since 2010, when it was Jamie McMurray in the Daytona 500 and then Jimmy Johnson at California and Las Vegas. Chevrolet is 3-0 and so far this year with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. in the Daytona 500. Kyle Busch at California, William Byron this past Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. So the last time that Chevrolet started 4-0 was in 2001, Michael Waltrip on that fateful day at Daytona, his teammate Steve Park at Rockingham, Jeff Gordon at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and Kevin Harvick 22 years ago today with the first win of his career. I say for the first time since 2001 that Chevrolet will start 4-0 on the season, and it is obvious. Kyle Larson is my clear and consensus pick to go to Victory Lane tomorrow at Phoenix Raceway. So that will do it for episode 126 of Jake's Take. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as I talked about. We have the new league year starting with free agency. We've got the draft coming up, and next weekend we go to Atlanta, Super Speedway, I guess you could say. So I'm going to catch you guys later. Enjoy the race tomorrow. Y'all take it easy.